rebel force has penetrated the shield and landed on Endor. This is where the fun begins. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. This is Rebel Force Radio. Your source for the Force. Star Wars news and commentary. With Jason Swank and Jimmy Mack. I've seen Star Wars 500 times. Star Wars number one. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we do it. Now it's time for Rebel Force Radio. We would be honored if you would join us. And here we are with a very special edition of Rebel Force Radio, the first in a brand new series of film commentaries, discussions while watching the film, I think we could say, uh, beginning with A New Hope, and we have a very, very special guest. But first, my good friend and yours from Chicago, Jimmy Mack. Hey, Jason. Hey, Star Wars fans. Well, as we all know, this weekend is May the 4th, as in May the 4th be with you. And we wanted to kick off that weekend in just the right way and give you something to celebrate with. And that's going to be a special commentary track for Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. We're going back to the original. We're going back to the roots of Star Wars. And we want to present it to you with a showbiz flair. That's right. We have a celebrity commentary coming your way. Joining us will be Clone Wars actor... From Being Human, Sam Witwer. Sam is going to sit in and watch the entire film with us. And we get a lot of feedback from you guys. And and you let us know who you like to hear on the show talking about Star Wars. And we get overwhelming response every time Sam is on the show with us. So we decided that we can all sit down together. We have the opportunity. Let's do it. Let's watch the original Star Wars together and get Sam's take on it. Scene by scene, frame by frame, beat by beat. I'm really looking forward to this. I've been wanting to sit down and watch this film with Sam for a long time, and I'm sure he will not disappoint. All right, Jim, if people want to participate with us at home, uh, walk them through this. How are we setting this up? All right, it's very simple. You know, first of all, I do want to say, you don't have to watch the film, because... As Star Wars fans who listen to Rebel Force Radio, we know you've seen Star Wars 500 times. So we know you know the film like the back of your hand, and you could probably follow along to our conversation without even seeing the film in front of you. But for the ultimate experience, to sit down and enjoy this film with your Star Wars buds, myself, Jason, and Sam, you're going to want to pop in the Blu-ray. That's right. We're going with the Blu-ray this time, Jason. In, in prior commentaries, we've always worked off the DVD. But this time, we're going with the Blu-ray. We're, we're moving into the new millennium, and we're going to watch Star Wars Episode Four on Blu-ray. So what you need to do right now is get your disc, put it in your Blu-ray machine, and let it cycle through to the menu where you see all the cool frames from the film and it looks kind of like a hologram table is what jason you were describing it as it does and so that's the main menu for the disc for episode four and along with this montage and collage of scenes from the film you'll see down at the bottom of your screen it says play setup search commentaries well we're going to want to hit play when I give you the countdown. So let's take a second to get ourselves settled in. Go pop your popcorn, grab a box of goobers, some, maybe some uh, Twizzlers, 
you know, all the good stuff you like to munch on <laughs> during the movie. I don't recommend nachos at the movie theater, Jason. I don't know if you're a nacho kind of guy, but I'm uh, not. You know, I, I actually, if I'm not doing the traditional popcorn, I like the pretzel bites with the cheese. Oh, the pretzel bites with the cheese. Lots of fun. So go get yourself a snack. <laughs> <laughs> get yourself the Blu-ray. Cue it up to that menu on the disc. We're going to give you a countdown. We're going to go three, two, one, play. And we're all going to hit play at the same time. And by the will of the force, we'll be watching the film together in synchronicity. So get yourself your snacks. Pop in that Blu-ray disc because here comes the countdown. Are you ready, Jason? I'm ready. Let's bring Sam on. Three, two, one, play. All right. Buttons being clicked. Coast to coast. Continent to continent. As we see the 20th Century Fox logo appear. Hey, Sam, thanks a lot for joining us tonight. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Just from uh, your past appearances on Rebel Force Radio, I think you might have a thing or two to say about this particular film. <laughs> you know, this is, um, this is my favorite one. It, you know, it's mine, too. It's, it's, to me, it's the classic. And, you know, there's that debate all the time. A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back. I always go with The New Hope. Are you guys seeing well, now the the motion picture rating? Did that come up for you guys? Yeah. Okay. Now I've got the, All right. Yeah. Yes. Now, now, yeah. Now we're now we're at the Lucasfilm Limited logo, the new fancy one, the fancy schmancy. Yeah. So I, I'm sorry, yeah. Sam. You were saying, uh, you know, uh, memories. Oh, it's, of I mean, it's interesting because when when I was younger, everyone was saying the Jedi was their favorite, and and then you get a little bit older, and everyone's saying Empire is their favorite, but no movie. Um, has such a complete beginning, middle, and an end. Works entirely on its own, and it gets you from zero to sixty miles per hour. You know, throughout the whole film, it acclimates you to this crazy world that George Lucas came up with. I mean, it's really, it's really brilliant. And uh, you cannot have an Empire Strikes Back without the um, incredibly well thought out lovingly crafted uh, setup that this movie gives you. You can't have any of the movies without this movie. I mean, everything is everything is really shown to you with fresh eyes and, and done in such an exciting way. Where I've heard, heard before uh, some people say Empire Strikes Back is the soul of Star Wars. A New Hope really is its heart. It's where yeah. everything, you know, the, the most legitimate emotion comes from this film. This is the classic that you want to put away in the vault forever alongside Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Citizen yep. Kane, classic, Casablanca, etc. And so, you know, I believe the uh, AFI has done just that. I believe it was one of its original films to get put away in uh, wh- yeah. wherever that vault is, their library. Right. I remember being... No, a- it's... I'm sorry, you were saying? I just remember being a kid sitting in a theater watching the words scroll by and just trying to see where it says a new hope for as far as it goes. <laughs> there it goes. It's gone. Right. <laughs> and now we have um, coming up this incredible opening shot. And, and from what I understand, um, the model of the Star Destroyer was, by some reports, three feet long. Other, others say it was four feet long. But that is just not... That is not a very big model for something that appears on screen to be so massive. True, true. I recall seeing it on display at the Star Wars Magic Magic of Myth Museum exhibit going back to 2000. They had, they had the three-footer there? Because I, I thought they had the eight-footer. Yeah, though they had the big one there. 
Was that from yeah. maybe that was from Empire? Maybe. Yeah, that's what they they built that for the Empire from Strikes Back. But this one, um, I to my knowledge, I've never seen this one um, live. I'd love to take a look at it because it is a very different looking model than the. the uh, I have a I have a little bit different take on this one. I I, I feel like this one's probably the most dated in terms of the hairstyles, in terms of the way people looked. Uh, and and, and that's, it's not a dig. I think that, it, you know, George says that he was consciously avoiding fashion in this. And I, I think he accomplished that to an extent. But it does look like a 1970s film in a lot of ways. Not, again, not that that's a bad thing. But once you get into Empire, it, it, I think it switches gears and it gets a little bit more... Uh, clean. Well, you know, it's it's funny. These these hairstyles seemed very dated until recently, when all these hairstyles have come back. Into oh, it's a good point. That's very, a great you know, point. Now they seem yeah. very modern. These hairstyles. Um, you know, probably, all these guys are sporting the uh, the Bieber look underneath those helmets. Of course, they are. <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they, that guy has spiky hair underneath. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Maybe a mohawk. <laughs> Already, we see this used universe, right? And yeah. Uh, I love that. I love that that he conceived of this world that was very lived in, and then of course the stormtroopers, which that design is just so incredible. It is. It is. I don't know how functional the, those suits of armor actually are, uh, judging from the way the five hundred first gingerly walk around after conventions. I don't think it's that <laughs> functional at all. And you know what you can notice here? You can see their the backs of their uh, where their calves are. It's sort of splitting open on those stormtrooper. Oh yes, yes, absolutely. I noticed you know, that. It's kind at of first. interesting. Is three PO and R two? Speaking of the, you know, used universe. Sorry to, to jump back to that. Um, they uh, they're moving a little slower in this film than they do in in the prequels. So that if you're catching up with them from having known them in Clone Wars or the prequels, they they seem like two old men, <laughs> kind of <laughs> a little bit junkier. And R two's moving slower. And then we here we have Darth Vader. My God, great yeah. interest great entrance one of the greatest entrances of film history first time you get to see a character by the way i think uh leia just put a floppy drive inside r2d2 yes <laughs> yes yeah. holds 1.5 megabytes which is just <laughs> enough to get the desktop on there. again much like the hairstyles it's another sign of the times well, you know, later, Sam, when we actually see the schematic of the Death Star, it's not exactly HD. Yeah, it's not exactly. <laughs> no, it's 64K. Right. Yeah. Um, look at the weathering on these on these characters. You know, like they really look like they've been through stuff. And and interestingly enough, you know, when we think of Darth Vader, we think of this guy who has this shiny helmet and sort of immaculately evil but not in this movie. He, too, mm-hmm. has weathering. I mean, if you look at his helmet, they they weathered it and uh, put little scars and dents in it and everything. And uh, you you can sort of see it here. Um, But his armor is just as used as everything else in this film. He uh, actually, it, I, I think he actually looks a little bit smaller in this one. By the time you, know, you get to Jedi, he just is enormous. Well, part of that is the fact that the uh, the robe goes over his chest piece. When you display the full chest piece over mm-hmm. the robe, he looks a lot broader chested. I think this is true. Did. Yeah, you notice he's making a, a fashion statement there with the, uh, right. with, <laughs> with the robes. Imagine, I just like the implication that Darth Vader, you know, was looking in the mirror one day and goes, uh, I should really put the chest piece over this. <laughs> <laughs> the chicks dig 
just... Now, Leia just killed one of those stormtroopers, and the rest of them are like, yeah, she'll be fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. it, really, it really shows that these troopers are not... They're not the guys we know from the Clone Wars animated series. These guys are soulless minions of the Empire. At this so point. true. Yeah, there's no brotherhood here. They're, they're no. like you said, Sam, soulless automatons, just, yes. you know, just working as if they're robots. And for a while, you know, we speculated, are the stormtroopers actually droids under all that armor? Right? We, you know, yeah, uh, there were a lot of theories. Actually, there, there was a 1980s publication, some sort of World of Star Wars thing that, that indicates in 1980 the the stormtroopers are clones, which I thought was great. And if you listen to this movie, I mean, I I think if they didn't have one voice actor doing all of the voices, it sure sounded like it because all of their voices sound like a different variation on the same guy. It's almost like, you know, um, you know, D Baker <laughs> doing all the. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, George has weighed in on this and has said that by this time said there was a lot of nepotism in the Empire, and a lot of the stormtroopers and the officers, for that matter, were the kids, the nephews of you know, some of the more important figures. And so you know, they're, they're not there because of their talent, necessarily, right. or their brains. Look at the weathering on Vader's helmet, man. It's, he's been in his, Okay, sorry. I'll leave that alone. So, but it's so true. I mean, you really make out that detail when you're watching it on Blu-ray now. I mean, these things were... We're lost to us as kids who went to the cinemas in the 70s and 80s. We didn't notice things like the weathering on his helmet. It all just looked big and bright and modern to us. But now we really do pick up all those imperfections in the... uh, in the armor, but you know what? It just it, it does accentuate that used universe look and makes it much more realistic to us. Well, yeah, it makes it look like Darth Vader's been in some scraps. You know, something else that they did with these Vader helmets is they painted on the highlights. Vader's um, face is actually largely uh, a silver color, and the his his left cheek is always painted reflective silver. And his right cheek is painted black to make the helmet seem a little bit shinier than it actually was. I, I presume because they didn't want to see the crew in the reflection of the right. helmet. Right. That's um, that, that's so. right. In fact, I think it was EFX that actually made a replica of the helmet from A New Hope and did all of that kind oh, of phony weathering. So, yeah. Speaking of weathering... My God, look at that. <laughs> look at these guys. Like I said, walking around like two old men who've you know, been together for way yeah. too long. You almost expect 3PO to start saying, I can, I can. Seriously. I remember this, this scene as a kid. Um, for me, this was, the, this was the moment where I really started wondering who these guys were. Um, I mean, it becomes clear in this, I guess, at this point in the film that we are following them, that there are lead characters. But, um, but this whole exchange between R2 and 3PO, going back and forth, 3PO uh, bickering and then eventually kicking R2, and then R2 having this really pensive moment where he's looking back and forth and does he want to leave his friend behind or does he want to go on the mission? And, and little taking screen time to do that makes you wonder about these people. These well, I just call them people. It makes them people, you know. <laughs> it does, I, I, right? They were it does. just. If it was going from A to B plot-wise, and we were not having a moment like this and spending t- precious screen time on it, I suspect we wouldn't care as much about R two and three PO without that scene right there. You know, it adds personality 
to yeah. robots, which has got to be the hardest thing in the world to do for a filmmaker because you're dealing with no emotion on their faces. Yeah. And, you know, just by nature, they're supposed to be emotionless. Yeah. So you have to not only work past the physical drawbacks, but you have to work past the fact that the audience knows robots aren't supposed to be emotional, that they're not supposed to be caring. And that's the first act of genius in this film, is yeah. the fact that in just a few simple shots, that personality, that ability for a machine to care, and for us as an audience to accept it, just within a matter of seconds, is a true accomplishment. It really is. And this skeleton, way, which I, apparently is still out in the desert somewhere. <laughs> people are still finding pieces of that. Oh, that's funny. It always makes me think of the sandworm from Beetlejuice. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's also a Dune element in this movie in a big way. Sure. Um, I don't know for a fact that George read that, but it seems to me that he must have. You know, I believe... Uh, I've talked to Paul Bateman about this, and Paul is a guy who's really, really gone out of his way to study the influences of Star Wars and learn where George pulled what from where. And I believe uh, Paul had told me in the past that George was a big fan of Dune and that there are definitely yeah. elements that are directly lifted from Dune. I don't know too much about it. I only saw the film with uh, David Bowie. <laughs> That's right. That's all and we'll never get those three hours back. No, I know. I saw it on, on TV, so at least I didn't pay for admission. It was on premium cable. Yeah. Here's the uh, Jawas. Jawas mostly played by children in these shots, um, with a few exceptions. Chief Jawa, played by Jackie Purvis. Now, do we think Kenny Baker was in there when that thing toppled <laughs> over? Just kind of wonder. Of course he was. You know, he does not want Right. I'm going to get no Workman's cop. He's yelling and screaming. <laughs> you know, here's another thing. Watch how these Jawas are, are introduced. There's such wonder. There's such, what, who are these people? What's going on? I mean, it's such a strange moment. And it's another reason why this film really does need to be seen first. Because there are, you know, there are Jawas and other elements of Tatooine that are introduced in, in The Phantom Menace. But they're they're not introduced with the same context you know the 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 sand people are scary in this movie in in episode uh one they're a comedic element which is fine if, if they're scary first but you can't you know for, go from scary to having a little you know fun you can't really go from fun to they're scary you know not without spending more screen time with them. you know it's um that's right well there wouldn't be the payoff of episode one if we didn't see them in their kind of or natural state in the in the previous uh, exactly. previous film, and we see we also see Jawas in, in episode one, and they're walking around. I mean, in this film, when these creatures come out of the the rocks to grab R two, I mean, it is a real moment of like, what, what, where are we? Are, are well, we... you know, it's very reminiscent. Speaking of Wizard of Oz, it's very reminiscent yes. of when the when the Munchkins all just sort of appear out of yeah. the flowers. Yeah, Jawas I, just I, lack that natural musical ability, though. Right, <laughs> they're, and they're not the entertainers. Here's this. I mean, th this was another moment for me as a kid that just blew my mind. That you're just surrounded by all these automata, these droids, and uh, and there's. It also set R two and three PO apart from these guys because you can see R two wandering through almost. It really, pen it really, really almost afraid. I mean, not afraid, but but mm. uh, hesitant around all these mm -hmm. droids. Mm -hmm. 
as if he relates, but he doesn't quite relate. Or at least that's the, pro- you know, that's me projecting. You know, <laughs> no, I think you're right. I mean, I think but that, look, he's not, well, he's not rolling across. He's, he's tiptoeing through all yeah. this stuff. Like he doesn't want to disturb these guys. He's, he's in, you know, he doesn't know who these, who these people are, you know, and, or these droids. He's, he's definitely a, a, a droid. That's I think more accustomed to working and being with humans. Than yeah. other droids and being treated like a person. Now, know? right I mean, there, exactly. when three PO's exactly. when three PO's eyes flash on and off, that was an unintentional effect. They didn't mean for that to happen, but they left it in there because it really underlines the feeling of shock and surprise that he's reunited yes. with R two, and it, it lends him more of that human behavior, more uh-huh. of that emotion. And you know, I've seen some fan edits where they've cleaned that up and uh-huh. removed it, and I'm like, no, no, you guys are missing the point. That's that's giving personality to 3PO. That's humanizing him. Yep, it's a blink. It's a what yeah. the hell? Am I seeing what I'm what I think I'm seeing? Well, Here we have the do-backs and stormtroopers. It's impossible for me to see that scene without thinking of combing the desert in Spaceballs. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. But I and mean, what a weird what a weird concept for a vehicle, this sand truly, crawler. So bizarre. Warehouse on wheels. Yeah. Yeah, basically. And I and, and I, in this and in this concept wake up that the droids actually sleep at times. That, I mean it's they're introducing all these personality quirks into these two plastic creatures. I have to confess to you guys that as a kid, when I first got this on videotape, I fast forwarded through all of this until we get to Luke. And, huh. But it just took, it, it's just something that didn't click with me until I got a little bit older hmm. until I really started to relate. But, well, of course, you know, in the original cut, Luke is introduced way earlier in the film. Right. But, yeah, as I understand that, that was 20th Century Fox being concerned that our protagonist doesn't show up until 20 minutes into the movie. <laughs> uh, well, and it really is. I'm looking at the at the uh, time here, and it's it'll be what 17 and a half minutes before we meet the protagonist. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you read a script, or yeah, it's usually like the first either the first voice you hear or the first person you see um, that tells you it's one or the other that tells you who the main character is. And this film does not let you know until, you know. Is it me or was that like a like a like a five foot Jawa there that just walked by? Yeah, there's a tall one there. Jeez, there's a tall one there. They had some tall kids there, and some of them are just moving around very awkwardly because they're struggling with this complicated costume. I mean, impossible to see out of. And then then we have the uh, John Williams Star Wars theme to let us know that this is in fact our protagonist. You know. No, Sam, you you bring up a good point about seeing the protagonist so late in the film and it's like i think did george do anything conventionally i mean no. this is all very <laughs> unconventional no he didn't <laughs> he, he broke really a didn't. lot of rules created new rules well i mean you can see why people were so hesitant about this film there was nothing he was doing that made any damn sense <laughs> <laughs> right. you know none of this makes sense there's there's little dudes in robes we don't meet the main character well, here's you know here's something that's not making sense. If you take the prequels in the play, how does Owen not recognize three PO at this point? I mean, well, three PO was uh, he was silver and battered we, up, I guess. Well, we, we yeah we we've established that there are other three PO droids, and they all look basically the same. And this particular three PO model uh, had gray beat up skin when he last saw him. Now he's gold. I guess yeah, so. I guess that works. You know what would have helped is if we were introduced to other protocol droids that did speak like 3PO. Then you'd understand well, the confusion. 
TC14. There you go. Yeah, but that's more of a feminine, you know, I'll be well, a British voice. Come on. <laughs> All right, Jason. Well, now, on. here we go. They're, they're, you know, uh, the, the big thing with uh, uh, R5-D4. Uh, there's Droid in uh, The Empire Strikes Back, who was voiced by Anthony Daniels, the Ichuta droid. Oh, really? That was uh, Anthony? I didn't know that. Well, it sure sounds like him. I, I'm, I'm assuming it is. Hmm. Uh, Ichuta. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I think the idea is that these, you know, there's different voice modules, there's different personality modules, and, and uh, you know, and, and different kinds. I mean, you know, a few different variations of the same coverings. Um, you know, I, I it's also been like 25 years. You know, talk, talk about infinities. What if R5-D4 here did not malfunction? Screwed. You <laughs> <laughs> would have been, he would have died in the Battle of Yavin. Well, you, you'd, have to, you'd have to assume that R2 would escape from the Jawas eventually and find Obi-Wan Kenobi. Hey, Sam, I don't know if you remember the old Eden's Theaters in Northbrook. They were on Skokie Boulevard. That's the first place I saw this film, Star Wars. And we got there so late. This right here is the moment that I walked in for the first time. (laughs) That's true. Our our generation of parents, I think. Yeah, they just, you know. Oh, yeah, we'll get there. Whatever, we're 20 minutes late. You're going to love it. (laughs) I remember walking in so late to so many movies. And now, I mean, I, I don't think it's just because I work in the industry, but, like, the idea of walking into a movie late is horrifying to me. Like, missing the beginning of the movie, and yet that was, you know, our parents were like, yeah, whatever. I, I don't know. It's fine. I'm sure we'll pick it up. Well, you know, those, those ticket prices were like a whopping $1.75 to get in. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a big investment for anyone to be making. We were all just killing time. Anthony okay, Daniels. Jim, Jim you, we were talking to our good buddy Jonathan Wilkins, and he was talking about the theaters as a kid in, uh, in Great Britain and how they would just loop the movies. So you would just walk in yeah. and, you know, catch it wherever it was or hope that you <laughs> caught it at the beginning. You might sit through the end. Crazy. Mm. Anthony Daniels once told me the way they got the steam effect for the oil bath was actually uh, with uh, tea kettles behind the machinery. Wow. Uh, yeah, as high tech as it gets. Primitive. I mean, <laughs> whatever works. I, I, I love this garage. You see Luke's Skyhopper in the background, yes. too. Is, there's a whole backstory there that Luke is a, a racer, you know, kind of a kid who races aircraft around and does all kinds of stupid, reckless things. He's a hmm. hot dog. You know, it just goes yeah. to when Obi-Wan says to him later, you know, I understand you become quite the pilot yourself. You right. Know, just having that little bit of visual evidence in the back of the garage is something. That yeah, to see his, his, you know, yeah, his hot rod, so to speak. Um, you know, the other thing about Luke, and it's made all the more clear once you see those uh, deleted scenes that come with the Blu-ray. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's it's not just that they're doing the the hero's journey and that Mark Hamill did a great everyman and stuff like that. It's it's also interesting to note that Luke is kind of a nerd. Um, mm-hmm. He's Very much. not he's not well liked by his peers. I mean, you know, he's got some friends, but he's not high on the social scale. I mean, he really this guy has a lot a long way to go, and he's you know. So when people say, "Oh, but Luke is such a," such a nerd they have a real hard time with that and and i always i never did and especially knowing where he goes that he ends up being this self-possessed man that he ends well, up if he's with. not a nerd if he's not a nerd it it it, it i think really changes his arc it, and it i totally I, does yes and, I, and i get the sense that his only real friend there is biggs 
and that yeah. he's only friends with those other ones because of Biggs. And it's yeah. it's more than just a friendship, though. Luke really looks up to Biggs. Biggs is the big man on the scene, so there's some hero worship going on there too. Yeah, so sure. Luke doesn't even really have an equal peer as a friend. He's you know his one friend is somebody who he idolizes, and his yeah. other friends are just you know people right in. The idol's coattails. So uh, that's maybe why he connects with these droids so well is because he doesn't really have any friends. Yeah, he understands what it's like to be on the low social strata. Um, and it's, you know, I, I always loved that. I always lo- thought that was a great way to start a character in a, on a hero's journey is to, you know, I think people wanted him to be like a, I mean, not, not a cool kid, not like a Han Solo, but I mean, I think it's why people locked into Han Solo. And mm-hmm. my argument is, well, if Luke is, you know, if Luke isn't an impetuous, nerdy kid, you're cutting into Han Solo's territory. You know, That's it's, right. you, you got to have two completely different characters that play off each other um, from the opposite ends. So, and by the you know, time you get to Jedi, the difference oh God, between the yeah. two is, is, is crazy. But, I mean, Luke is far more serious. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and you can see... Um, in the Empire Strikes Back, I mean, it is such a beautiful halfway point between the Return of the Jedi Luke and the New Hope Luke. I mean, Mark Hamill really did a great job of describing this character's arc. Um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, he, make no mistake, this guy on the screen here is the reason that we have Star Wars. I mean, if we hadn't, if we didn't have a protagonist that, that we relate to, I I just don't think the whole movie works at all. I don't think it works. You know, I mean, it's this guy, um, his hero's journey from the three original films, um, needed to be done and it needed to be done perfectly. And I, I dare say it was, I mean, you know, a friend of mine, we were having a debate and, uh, and, and he said, well, you know, he, he said he didn't really like Mark Hamill's performances in these movies. And, and I said to him, I said, and this guy's an actor. I said, listen, um, when do you ever look? When do you ever look at Luke Skywalker, and ask yourself, "Well, I don't, I don't really get what, what's going on with him there. What's what's happening with Luke at this moment?" It's like, and the answer is never. You always look at Luke, and you can just glance at the character and know exactly how he feels and how to take everything that's going on around him because he is the eyes through which we see, you know, this universe. And and his opinion is super clear at every moment throughout this journey, which works very well for star Wars. And, you know, to, and, and my friend says, well, that's okay. That's a really good point. That's, that takes some skill. He's like, but he's like, but there's no subtlety. And I'm like, there's no subtlety in a movie where the bad guy wears a black cape and has a red laser sword. What are you talking about? Subtlety, man, this is not the time to be subtle. It needs to be bigger than life and totally clear. I mean, look, here's Luke walking out to look at a sunset. (laughs) Come on. It's not making subtle, um, right, and, and, and by the way, he he, he angrily kicks that rock too. You know, as he's totally. walking out. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know what? He like, should. Oh, yes, he should. This is a timeless tale about you know a coming of age thing. And uh, once I once I expressed all that, my my buddy was like, okay, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's exactly what it needed to be. And I think we have now thirty plus years of evidence that it's exactly what it needed to be. Terribly underrated performance. I don't think it will be in 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 the in the long run. I mean, like you can see even throughout the years that we've been watching these films, Mark Hamill's been getting more and more respect for what he did here. Mm. But I mean, everything—the way he treats the droids, he, he gives them humanity. The way he 
I mean, Yoda is all Mark Hamill. I mean, okay, look, it's Mark Hamill and it's Frank Oz, but it's those two working together to create that character. You know, it's true. Well, true. What what I what I think is really helping Hamill's performance here is the fact that he he was such a fan of comic books and cartoons and he (laughs) he believes everything that he's doing whereas the reason that harrison ford works so well as han solo is he doesn't buy any of this yes it's perfect it's a great opposition and you need both of those voices it's like uh you know it's like it's like bones in star trek i mean you have like captain kirk who's you know this man of action but also kind of office rocker you got spock who's a freaking alien and then you got a guy like named bones who's like I don't, I don't get this stuff, guys. And you need that. <laughs> yeah. So the audience yes. feels relaxed. So they go, oh, I don't get it either. I guess that's fine. Or, you know, I feel grounded. But, um, you know, yeah, Mark Hamill's, uh, we really owe that guy. You know, he. Uh, sure. As he you can really, see with and, Owen. And, 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 sorry, go for it. No, I just want to point this out before it passes by. But as you can see with Owen and Baru, the, the tattooing aging on human skin is just brutal. This is what this is tw- twenty what twenty four years after Attack of the Clones. So currently, right now in in real time, we are eleven years beyond Attack of the Clones, and something tells me in fourteen years, Bonnie Peace is going to look nothing like the woman playing. <laughs> well, wait, this is, no, actually, is. no. Luke is Luke is. Uh, that, that's incorrect. Attack of the Clones kicks off the Clone Wars, right? The Clone Wars, you know, they said it's three years, but we've learned recently that it was five February, you know, and, uh, um, so you got five, you know, I'll say five years of clone wars and then 20 to 22 years after that. So this is more like, uh, you know, 27 years after revenge of the Sith. Nice. I mean, if you, I mean, look, anyone can make any argument. I, I'm not necessarily right, but that's my take. All right. Um, cause you know, Luke is born at the end of revenge of the Sith and he's, he's like 22 here, you know? Right, or maybe he's eighteen, or maybe he's twenty. But you know, somewhere around twenty years passed between episode three and episode four, and you know, anyway, Tatooine is a harsh place. The right. old, the old guys, uh, the old guys like Vader, Palpatine, Yoda, Obi Wan. They always refer to Luke as a boy, and being a kid watching this film, Luke wasn't really a boy to me. He was an adult. Because I was, you know, 10 years old watching this. And so, to me, he was old enough to drive a car. So, that made him There you adult. go, right. I, I, even now, I don't, I, don't, I don't think that he... I think Sam's right. I think he's supposed to be somewhere in his early 20s, maybe, yeah. maybe just 20. Here's a yeah, I mean, I think, I think the, the guy is on his way to becoming a, a farmer. He's already sort of started on that path. And, you know, his buddies are already going off to, to college. And Luke is, you know late on that you know he wants to leave town but his you know his window is closing this blu-ray tweak here is something that's pissed off a lot of people are two hiding behind these rocks these rocks were never there and then there's the crate dragon yell that's been changed about four times now i kind of like this this latest crate dragon sound actually i kind of like it but i don't know about the the r2 I, I always assumed he was kind of in a cave. I don't know why this was necessary. Because the point of view shot, from Archie's point of view, always had him in a cave. Mm-hmm. I think the idea is that makes him look a little bit more meek, you know, that sure. a little bit more pensive. Because he really was kind of out in the open. All the sand people needed to do was be like, hey, free droid. <laughs> you know, true. That's true. Um, he is kind of out know, there. I, I get why he did it. I mean, you know... 
I, th I think we should probably just address this now because we're going to have a lot of things to say coming up. Um, I actually have no objection to him monkeying with these films, you know, for the rest of his life if he wants to. My my thing is uh, release the originals as well, so that we can have both. You know, mm -hmm. monkey monkey with these all that you want, and uh, we'll keep checking it out. Well, you know, I mean, I I am not a bandwagon guy who says, oh, you know, all the special editions are crap. I mean, that's that's just not. That's not being objective, you know. There are there are good changes and there are bad changes. At least in terms of my opinion, right? There are things that that work better and there are things that I think work worse. But um, you know, all of that would be immaterial if if uh, we had access to the original film document. I mean, we have to remember that this film changed Hollywood, changed. I mean changed American society to a certain extent. I mean, it was a huge phenomenon and it wasn't this version of the film. It was a comparatively primitive version of the film that made that change that really made the impression. And, and I think we, we deserve to have that document to, uh, to look at it and say, this is what did it. Right. Our, it is, it is, it is interesting because, you know, George Lucas is such uh, a, a guy that has a profound appreciation for film and film legacies and, and the heritage of filmmaking and all of that. But it's it's almost as if he can't really take himself outside of it and really see the impact that this film has had. I mean, he, he's, he's often said, you know, uh, art is never finished. It's only abandoned. And that's the way he sees it. But I don't think he would feel that way about Citizen Kane. I don't think he would feel that way about the original King Kong. Or well, I think, Wizard of Oz. Or Wizard of yeah. Oz, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he made impassioned pleas to, to not colorize things like the Three Stooges. And, and, but I think the argument he would make is, well, no, but I'm the artist who did it, so I have the right to do it. And, and my thing is, fine. I, I'm actually, I've, I've always been interested in the changes that he... That he uh, wanted to implement because I've, I've really some of them I really like so it's always it's kind of fun it's, you, to watch the movie with fresh eyes I, I've, I've been I've embraced that process while lamenting the fact that we are not you know just, just being given the original historical document a document of historical significance is you know that original cut of the film the theatrical cut so you know my thing is <laughs> You know, it's well. You might get your you wish, want, but give us both. Sam. Now that yeah. the now that the property is switched hands, I doubt that we will see further tinkering. Actually, I, then I think that we've probably. Oh, don't don't be so sure. Uh, I don't know. Never know. <laughs> now, here's the interesting thing. A friend of mine said that this is the this is the moment where the fanboy was born. <laughs> right here, coming up. <laughs> but this is um. The passing you know, of the saber. Yes, well, but also the discovery of the saber. Mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. you don't see it in a fight, you don't see it flippantly. It is given weight and 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 it's given its own moment. And Luke gets to take it. It's and, Excalibur. Yes, and Luke is Luke is us, right? So basically, mm -hmm. the filmmaker hands us a lightsaber, and we get to wave it around and say, "What the hell is this?" While Obi-Wan spins this tale about these knights and you know, the round table and fighting dragons and all kinds of crazy stuff. <laughs> Is that how you looked at it before the prequels? It was like a knights of the round table and of you know, that nature? I, yes, and, and I still very much look at it that way. That they're, you know, these bigger-than-life adventures. And, uh, 
Now, it's, it's, it's unlikely that Alec Guinness was told by George that Obi-Wan was feeding Luke a bit of a line here or was being purposely vague or misdirecting. But boy, his performance sure does back that up. I mean, he's, he's yes. so measured. He's so measured in what he's telling Luke. It's just, I mean, another fantastic performance, obviously. But Yeah, well, you know, it's, there's a lot of historical evidence that says that Lucas didn't come up with the whole uh, Vader-father connection until well into, I don't know what revision of The Empire Strikes Back. I mean, there were versions of that script that had a ghost Anakin Skywalker advising Luke. Right. Along with Ben right. Kenobi. And, uh, you know, I, th- I think it was just one of those eureka moments where Lucas realized, oh, there's this whole... You know, Anakin was a pupil of Obi-Wan and Vader was a pupil of Obi-Wan. They were both Jedi. They were, they, you know, one's history ends where the other one begins. Why aren't they the same guy? I mean, I think he had a eureka moment um, and uh, and figured it out. And then, you know, probably went back, watched this film and goes, my God, it fits perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> because right. there's there's nothing here that says, that, that, that leads you to believe that he didn't have it in mind beforehand. And, and who knows? The guy had such a huge treatment with so many ideas that have been, you know, swirling around. I mean, hell, in the Clone Wars, there are there are elements and sometimes whole stories that take place in those episodes that I was aware of from early versions of various scripts. Um, not that I read those scripts, but I was told by people at Lucasfilm, you know, over the years that I've, that I've worked there, um, you know, certain things that happen in these, in these early scripts. And, uh, and he never really throws these ideas away. They kind of stay in his subconscious until he finds the right place for him. So, you know, who knows, who knows how this all. Yeah, George right. Lucas never throws an idea away. Even if he thinks it's a bad idea, he's always held on to it. And I, you know, I think he deserves, deserves a lot of credit for that, especially in this you know day and age we live with. Everything seems so disposable all the time. He he holds on to an idea, nurtures it, and finds a place and a way to make it fit. Right. Do we feel that uh, Obi Wan has a closet of those robes, or is that is that <laughs> it? Uh, <laughs> it's like hard to say. <laughs> I don't think that place is very big. I don't see him having a big walk-in closet. No, I don't think uh, so either. These are my shoes. So. These are my robes. <laughs> He's like giving a tour like but, MTV but, Cribs uh, at Beyonce's you know, point house. out here, though, he's got, if you notice, he's wearing uh, the, the underrobe here uh, yeah. is, is a lot shorter than, or excuse me, a lot longer than what we see him in the prequels. And that's mainly due to all of the uh, acrobatic work that they needed to do. Mm-hmm. Big yeah, surprise to me. better legs than Alec Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, so, you know, uh, I, I want to point out something here that, you know, for, uh, something that, that, has come to my attention that, you know, kids who started on Star Wars by watching the Clone Wars are really shocked and dismayed to learn in this film that Anakin has died by Darth Vader's hand. So by the time they get to this scene, they're really reviling this guy and uh, Mm. really would like to see him take a fall because he killed Anakin Skywalker. He killed their hero. And uh, it isn't until later that they discover that this is the character that they brought it to. Wow, that's amazing. A new that, twist. That's, yeah, and it adds a lot more weight to Anakin, be, you know, the reveal of him being Luke's father. Because we yeah. never knew Anakin as a character or as a hero like kids coming up nowadays do. They're being raised to love and respect and honor Anakin Skywalker. So, Which is due in, in no small part to Matt Lanter, I think. And, uh, 
I mean, <laughs> you know, he's he, in that in that show. He does a great job of creating a very Western Anakin, a very uh, oh, he's he's the Anakin that we always kind of mm-hmm. thought he was. Because I I always feel that in the films, Hayden's Anakin is never really in control like the Clone Wars, like Matt's Anakin. And that Anakin seems confident and in control, and you see him in a mentoring situation with ahsoka so you see that he has the ability to rule and you you see the he has the ability to teach and to inspire but he also has the ability to lead these troops yeah. we never get that feeling from anakin in the films because he's dealing yeah. with so many personal issues that's the anakin yeah. well he get. is a he is a hot mess uh it, it, it both times you see him actually yeah. even in attack of the clones he's so eaten up mm-hmm. by this girl and then in Revenge of the Sith, he's dealing with the the, the possible death of her, and and the war has sure. come gone out of control. And yeah, a lot of things you are know, happening. It's, it's like his character has the inability to deal with freedom. He's at his best when he is a slave. He was a slave ah, in Episode but Jim, One. But Jim, when you, when you're in crisis mode, you don't have to do a lot of thinking. You know, it's all instinct and it's all survival. And so without that, uh, he's left to ponder and to think. But you see, he's, well, that could be a motivating factor. He is definitely at his best. He reaches his highest potential when he is under someone else's thumb. In episode one, he's under Watto's thumb. In episode four, five, six, he's under the Emperor's thumb. And that's where you see him being at his most powerful, in my opinion. I don't think we see Anakin being very powerful in episodes two and three. I think we're dealing with the focus of him having all these issues. That's all coming into play. You never see the real confident Jedi general that we know he was. And you never see the confident dark side ruler that he becomes in the original trilogy. You just By deal the way, with this a is lot a, of... This is a pretty brutal... Yeah. seen here, especially yeah, in, in, in high def. Yeah, wow. Uh, you see, yeah, you really get to see it. I mean, I think when I was a kid, I wasn't. I, I don't know that I was even aware of what was there. And think it, now you see it plain as day. Think of psychologically, if you just kind of think about Luke's journey. I mean, discovering your aunt and uncle, for all intents and purposes, your parents, charred their skeletal remains, and then the battle that he has with his father this character that he learns is his father and empire strikes back it's amazing that this guy is even functioning by the time we get to return uh, of the i Jedi. haven't seen a family fight like this since my big fat greek wedding <laughs> well you know that's the thing the, the, the star wars movies or someone saying uh you know the, the death of luke's and uncle you know there are plays i mean how shakespeare wrote a few where the whole play is about that one event the death of someone close to you and and uh, that's just not the priority of, of this film. This film is, um, you know, about it's, it's a big, sweeping mythological tale, and uh, you do need to get on with things. I mean, you could spend th- twenty minutes on the death of <laughs> Owen sure. and Peru, but really, really, I mean, you know, it's it's interesting to to. I mean, you only have two hours to tell this whole story, so you need to really, you do need to move it along. I recall and, when uh, I when I showed my son this movie for the first time the charred remains of auntie and uncle really made him sit up and say oh my god what is it and he demanded i rewind it and i think there mm. might have been freeze framing going on and i mean <laughs> wow. he, he was shocked really, yeah 
he was absolutely shocked by that. Put on faces of death afterward, and you guys just had a whole <laughs> evening. You guys, oh. Some good father-son bonding there. Now, here's, here's, you know, one of the bigger changes is that Moss Eisley has gone from basically a gas station to uh, <laughs> a spaceport. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some people liked it better as a gas station. Um, I, I prefer it as a spaceport because I think at, at this point in the story, Luke needs to start going to the big city. You know, Luke, right. the, the world yes. needs to start opening up and going to a gas station is not <laughs> the world opening up. <laughs> yeah, right. You, you um, need something a little more grand, a little more exotic to become your threshold moment when you're dealing with the saga as expansive yes. as this is. And yes, what gas exactly. station has a bar? Well, it's a truck stop then. It's yeah. not, <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, but truck it's, stop, that's right. Look, and, and nothing against, you know, maybe, you know, maybe the, the truck stop moment with all the aliens is, is a big enough threshold moment for, for the purists. And I would never argue that, that anyone's preference for the original is, is wrong. But, but again, just objectively speaking, um, I, I like this change. I, I could do without perhaps the, the traffic accident or, or some of the sillier stuff, but the actual design of the city. And there's a lot of business. Down. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of business that happens just while they're making their way there. And I, I, I agree. I think some of it's a little bit overkill. Uh, right. Like, you know, the dinosaur hiding behind the stormtrooper. It's just like, okay, <laughs> is there, they, it was clear this technology was new and they were excited about it, you know? I mean, this the dinosaur <laughs> just walking by as Luke right. drives by, that's great. You know, there it is in the background and and I think that's really cool. That's what we want. We want things to fill out the background. Um, but, we, you know, we don't want robots coming up in your face and waiting at you. And, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, right. Yeah. It's, right. Um, it's, they, they perhaps weren't as restrained as they, as they could have been. But, but overall, I, I, really, I really like a lot of the stuff that they did here in this, for this city thing. Because, again, it does feel like he's coming, he's coming into a different world. No, it was fun to watch, uh, you know, we talk about the evolution, you know, with the technology uh, on the film, but it was also fun on the Clone Wars to watch how uh, every time that they would come back to a uh, a bar that was reminiscent of the cantina, how each time it would get a little bit more, uh, you know, filled out and there'd be more aliens, there'd be more creatures. So there was quite an evolution going on on the series as well. Yeah, well, until eventually you just start going to this bar, <laughs> literally. Um, right. This is this is the bar where, you know, Asajj Ventress takes the bounty to go after Clancy Brown's Savage character. Um, yeah, it's. I and this this whole scene is just genius. It's. Uh, yeah, there's some sideburns right there, Bo Sheck. So you know, <laughs> Jason, like you said, Lucas yeah. was was trying to downplay any sort of contemporary fashion in this film. And, you know, just by making it in the 70s, the 70s was sort of an anti-fashion decade to begin with. And, you know, people were naturally scruffy looking. And the sideburns was, you know, that was just an out-of-control scene. And you see it very prevalent in this film, along with the shaggy haircuts and everything. And, And like Sam said, now you see it everywhere you go. Maybe not the sideburns so much, but... Uh, well, I think it was a response to the 50s and 60s, which was a very button-down yes. and sleek and mm-hmm. pomade. Yeah, men with <laughs> yeah. hats. 
time. So you were dealing totally. with just a, a natural flavor, a natural atmosphere of anti-fashion to begin with in the 70s. So George yeah. didn't really feel like he had to do anything. And now here we are in the year 2013 looking back at it and recognizing 70s fashion as we know it, when it was actually anti-fashion, which was happening. So nice nose. Yeah, this guy. <laughs> you know, it's it's it's... It's interesting to see some of the uh, the publicity stills of these creatures, and it's uh, I, I think about how Yoda is is enhanced by the the lighting and the setting of Dagobah, and certainly these these creatures are aided uh, by the controlled lighting here because Doctor Evazan is not that scary looking outside of uh, a dimly lit bar. Yeah, it's true. He's, he's kind of ridiculous but in the film he looks really really great oh yeah it's one yeah. of the rare examples of blood being visible in the star wars films yeah yeah typically the lightsaber is known to cauterize the wound instantly but in this case yeah. not so much not with uh walrus man well i know that i've just seen and read enough interviews with george that he really doesn't like gore gore is something that doesn't really appeal to him and i think he really struggled with uh how far to take uh, the you know, Anakin at the end of Revenge of the Sith. I think that was something that was hard for him to do, but it was, <laughs> it was necessary. It was effective. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. And then here we, uh, oh boy, introduce the uh, the rogue, the scoundrel. Uh, there's there's few actors that have more presence on screen than Harrison Ford. It's he just and it's, and it's you can't take your eyes off the guy. Here he is, thirty five years old. And just didn't work that much as an actor. I mean, he right. and he gave it up. He was a carpenter, and Fred Roos invited him over to the casting office to do some work while they were reading Han Solo's, and they were short a Han Solo, so they started reading Harrison. He was not supposed to audition for this role, and he was, as they thought, he was. Well, wait a second, Harrison is actually kind of the best for this. But he, uh, this is a, this guy. The, the fascinating thing about this film is aside from Alec Guinness, you have a bunch of young actors and, and I, I include Harrison Ford at 35 as a young actor who are whatever they think of what they're doing here they know that this might be it for them. This could be the only movie they ever do. Mm. You know, it's just, this could be it. This could be, uh, you know, so they're, they're really trying. You can tell that they're hungry for it and they're making bold and and uh, at times unusual choices, um, but I love that. I love that about this film. It's like you can you can feel that these actors are hungry. You know, Harrison Ford, uh, you know, is struggling to to uh, to bring home food for his family at this time. Yeah, he'd already given up. The, I just love it. He'd given up the idea of being a successful actor. Well, he and, said he could he could make. He was reluctant to take acting gigs because he could make more money. As a carpenter. Right. Yeah. Well, because the roles he was doing, man, I mean, they were just tiny. You know, that no one, you know, you look at, you said, few actors have this kind of screen presence, but it took Hollywood until he was 35 to recognize that about him. Right. 35. I mean, you know, he'd been in other things and no one really thought much of him. They're like, well, who's this guy? I don't get it. He's, he looks kind of funny. And I mean, it's a, it's the thing I, I say to people about Hollywood. Um, they're always looking for the next thing, right? What is it going to be the next thing? Well, they're going to hire people 
that, that you know that are more of a known quantity. So people like Harrison Ford are not going to get the roles, but they're going to go out for them. They will be seen for them because Hollywood has an awareness that there are new things. And you know, I mean, look look at Matt Damon, right? I mean, before Matt Damon, that wasn't a thing. There was no Matt Damon type. You know, he right. he's, kind of an, a, he's not a typical leading man, and now he is. Now you're like, oh yeah, Matt Damon type, Harrison Ford type, sure, sure. Mm-hmm. But back then, this was not. This was a, this was a new thing. I, I I'd say probably at this time in the in the mid to late seventies. Your leading man was more like uh, uh, Burt Reynolds than a Harrison Ford. Hey, by the way, we should we should probably address what we just saw, right? The yep. whole right, yeah. You know. <laughs> now here's one of the Wait, changes. Which version is this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I, I'm going to give him. It's funny because every version of this film that we see, every successive version that Lucas monkeys with, the shots are closer and closer together. I mean, the, the Blu-ray, this this version that we're watching now you don't really see what happens. It looks like there's a stray ricochet somewhere. You don't really under, you know, see that Greedo shoots first, which, by the way, I'm, I'm much better with than what we had before with Greedo takes a shot, and then five seconds later, Han picks <laughs> up and shoots back. And he misses him at point blank. And, you know, and least in this version, it just looks like some sort of chaos happened, and they both took a shot, and you know, it looks like Han could have shot first, and Greedo just as he as he went down took a shot. You know, you know there there is a part of me that just wants to say, who cares on the whole debate? But the reality is, I do care, and <laughs> it's absolutely absurd, absurd that it's not left the way it was yeah. because it was a it was a great. It was a great moment. You know, Jim, you and I, we, we talked on Bondcast about in Dr. No when Bond kills Dent in cold blood, uh, an unarmed man. It, it, it informs you about the character. Yes. And Han well, Solo's survivor. And in this case, you know, ever, he, Lucas would say, oh, but we didn't want Han to kill him in cold blood. Be like, I don't know about you, but if someone puts a gun to my face exactly, right. and says, I am going to kill you, which is what Greedo's saying. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. Um, I think I have the right to pull the trigger at that point because this guys he's, he's got a gun to my head and he's announcing the intent to kill me. So yeah. I don't, I don't know how much more justified he needed to be. Um, I mean, I will say that I'm, I'm glad that, I mean, you can see Lucas inching back toward that original decision. You know, I mean, this mm. is the this is the pitfall of going and monkeying with your work. I mean, you know, I mean, I'll just talk about when I was uh, producing uh, a music album, and the producer would say to me, like, "Dude, the song's done." I'd be like, "Yeah, but I still feel like this and that." And he's like, "Look, you're gonna you're gonna monkey with things, and you're gonna actually make you're gonna make some things better, but you're gonna make some things worse mm-hmm. at at this point." It'll be diminishing returns, and uh, I just Lucas is a stubborn man, and you can sense by every evolution of these special editions that that he is coming around to the idea that Han shot first. You know, you can sense it, but I don't think that he will ever really admit that. Um, and again, you know, it's it's you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I, you know, I have to say, too, uh, on the subject of changes, I, I don't feel that Java ever really worked here. Uh, I, I don't think that the computer-generated Java has ever gotten even remotely close to the Java in Return of the Jedi. Uh, I just, ever. Yeah, I don't... 
Yeah. At least in this version, he looks like the same guy, but um, there really is something to the weight of a, of a you know, what, yeah. like 500 pounds of, or 700 pounds of a latex. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, it, when they did the original special edition, they had a really, uh, a Java puppet, the Java CG puppet that didn't look like Java and moved around way too much. And right. I remember interviews with this, the animators saying, yeah, well, see, Java couldn't move before, and now we can really make him be expressive. And what they didn't understand is that that lack of expression is an expression all itself. He's Marlon yes. Brando from The Godfather. He's so, he's just staring at you, and, and he's big, and he doesn't need to move. So it gave, it gave Java status, and it gave him presence that he didn't move too much. Well, and, it would uh, be a lesson. It'd be a lesson that they would really learn with with CG Yoda. You know, there oh, yes. lots of examples of them having to pull back on the expression. And, and yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think that this Java CG puppet is is much better. They seem to be learning that that lesson. Um, you know, it's. I'm sorry, I'm getting taken up on the action. <laughs> it's hard to look away. You know, all the, the, the lights flashing and everything is uh, distracting. And, this, and, and and I remember... The, uh, ship, the ship taking off, that's a great addition. I, I oh, yeah, that's a good one. Oh, yeah. Nobody's going to complain about that. The, uh, yeah. the, the previous, the original effect was fairly uh, uninspired and uh, un- ineffective. But that, that particular shootout... Um, my, uh, I was trying to convince my grandmother to take me to see the film uh, for probably the 25th time one summer and explaining her how necessary it was that I go to see it. And she had told me that she had read somewhere that all the lights flashing will give you a stroke if you see this m- movie. Yeah, she, she was like terrified. <laughs> I mean, just she, she's like, she couldn't believe that I had actually gone to see it. She was worried for my health. You survived it. I, I, mean, I, yeah, I made it through. This was not what people were used to seeing. It was, I mean... Right now, the the film seems it just seems well paced, but but at this point, you know, in in film history, people were not used to editing that that took place this quickly. You know, I mean, this was like breakneck pace for people in the seventies. Some people couldn't even follow it; it was so fast. And now it just seems, you know, almost leisurely at times. Yeah, right. Which I sure. love, by the way. I love how this movie's tempo ramps up progressively and it starts very slow and slice of life you know um on tatooine and then it just starts speeding up now what we missed in the prequels was watching a ship jump to light speed from that cockpit perspective and it's been in every star wars original trilogy film and was completely absent from the prequels and it is a fanboy who nitpicks that's one thing i really missed i missed it too but there's an interesting thing, right? You can't do everything. And what I mean by that is when you don't have it in the prequels, you're making a statement about Han Solo and his ship. Does that make sense? You're, you're making a, a statement about, well, I guess well, maybe I'm, I'm undercutting my own point because I know that they did the same effect with a, an Imperial shuttle in Return of the Jedi. In, in Jedi, but, yeah. But, you know, I mean, okay, I, I think you're right. I think they should. <laughs> <I take it. laughs> it's it just one of those staples. Is you know, I, I'll, I'll say this, like, in the, in the prequels, the Star Wars theme is conspicuously absent throughout, like, the prequels. I mean, like, it shows up every now and then, but it doesn't really show up as, as much as it shows up in these movies. And, and there's nothing more Star Wars than that Star Wars theme. There's nothing more heroic than that theme. And I remember th- saying to someone, I said, you know, 
I will forgive the Star Wars theme being largely absent in the prequels if if they make the statement that it's really Luke's theme. If if you if we see Luke as a child and they play that theme, I will feel like that's a great payoff. And then they did in Revenge of the Sith, and so I was like, okay, I, I get it. They're they're saving certain things up. They're they're keeping in mind that you know you can't overuse any of these elements. But the hyperspace thing, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, who doesn't love that effect? Yeah. Again, getting back to the uh, the psychology here. Imagine watching your entire planet destroyed and everybody and everything you ever knew gone in the blink of an eye. You know, it's interesting yeah. you bring this up. Very heavy. I was talking to Brian Wood, who's the writer of the new Star Wars monthly comic for Dark Horse, which picks up the day after the Battle of Yavin. And what that title has been doing with the Princess Leia character has been revealing her in these these moments. Therapy sessions. She years of therapy. Years, yeah, she's lying on a, a couch <laughs> with um <laughs> with Tony Soprano's uh, psych- psychiatric help. No, um, actually, she's dealing with, with that. She's dealing with the grief. She's dealing with the nostalgia. She's dealing with the loss of her her life, you know, as she knew it up to that point in time. That was her home planet. And uh, it was destroyed right in front of her. Just It's part of a game almost, you know. It's part of a, a guy grandstanding and, and showing off his power. And it's just, you know... It, it's extremely tragic and, and pathetic to see all that life just go by the wayside. It, it really underlies how how powerful and how evil the Empire really is. Because at this point in time, you're dealing with the introduction of the Empire, and it's not really established to you what makes these cats so bad. And an act of wiping out an entire planet, genocide of that magnitude really, really puts these guys up on a different level as far as evilness goes. Well, it's, it's kind of fun to know. I mean, the Empire is Nazi Germany. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, look at their uniforms, the, the Aunt Owen, or the Aunt Beru and Uncle Owen death and, and the destruction of Alderaan. I mean, these are, they're, they're really pointing toward Nazi Germany. As, uh, and, and, you know, now that we've seen the prequels, we... We recognize that, yeah, it really is um, a society that was hijacked by some, you know, by a very charismatic politician. How um, is it they haven't fixed this effect on Luke Sky on, on his saber at this point? You can still see it's that rotating reflective metal stick that they were using on the set. It almost looks greenish there. Mm. No, sure, you know, but I, I'll say this: it's like, yeah, maybe they should have done that. Maybe. But I really like seeing that. I really like seeing how they, you know, I like, the, I'll put it to you this way. The, the original effects, there's, there's going to be a shot coming up uh, when, when Vader goes to confront Obi-Wan. And as he walks and his lightsaber leaves frame, there is a, a halo. There's like light coming up from below the frame where the lightsaber was. Because those things were actually reflecting and putting out, you know, uh, a light in a real way. And, um, you know, the, and the fact that it's all hand done, the fact that it's permanently done, it gives the lightsabers a certain character that they didn't necessarily have in the prequels. Well, it, it actually, it looks, it looks yellow at times, too, which, mm-hmm. you know, if I recall the, some of the original 
Kenner lightsabers that came out were yellow. Oh, they were. The inflatable ones were. And as a matter of fact, on the original Kenner vintage card for Obi-Wan, he's holding a yellow lightsaber. It's an actual photo of Alec Guinness, and they touched Mm. up yellow. What's the purpose, Sam, of having a helmet with a a visor that you cannot see through? Um, I I mean, you want an answer right now? Uh, There's there's a (laughs) heads-up display. Oh, okay. All right. Well, why is it, was Luke using? Could he have used that to see the uh, the sensor? No. no, he couldn't have because you have to plug the head. The heads up display links up with the cockpit's navigational computer and scanners via Bluetooth, and uh, and at that point you get you know your HUD and and some you know like let's say you're flying in a you know like a solar flare or something and it's really bright. Um, you put the blast shield down and the, and you fly. Basically, via the HUD. How about that? Uh, that works for me. I, wow. That's what I always assumed. I always assumed that it was to combat, you know, uh, brightness and things like that. You're able to, and it just would block out all light. I thought that's what eyelids were for. <laughs> well, no, <laughs> eyelids actually are somewhat translucent. So. Uh, that's, that's what the Vulcan second eyelid is for. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is interesting. And by the way, the. God, this this film has never sounded better. I mean, they really. I mean, I I, I love the sound enhancements they made for because we're you know we're talking about all these visual enhancements or these new scenes, mm-hmm. but let's talk about the sound for a second. I mean, they uh, they really brought this film up to spec in a big way. Um, you know, I mean, like they they went back and they they uh, they found the original recording tapes of James Earl Jones and and. You know, did a proper sound pass on it. You know, and and I mean, just they, all this. There are a lot of you know. For example, those asteroids flying by had sounds, and there are a lot. There's a lot more sound design happening in this film uh, than was original. You know, a lot of people don't realize, but oh, it was about ten years ago. Matt Wood and Dave Acord at Skywalker Sound actually remixed the entire soundtrack from the right. core elements. So they yeah. essentially put the entire thing back together, one sound element at a time. Unbelievable. It is unbelievable. And they added you know, a few things in there. Something about uh, Alec Guinness's performance that has stood out to me over recent years is, is knowing how difficult this genre was for him uh i think it's a testament to what a great actor he is because he's so believable you don't really get the sense that this is a guy who is reluctantly doing anything he's really giving it his all or he's just one of those guys that just makes it look so effortless i think you might be dealing with a little bit of both yeah um sam huntington's kid He's like three and a half, and uh, his favorite character from because he watched the Clone Wars. His favorite character is Obi Wan Kenobi, and we recently showed him this film. And uh, coming out of this film, his favorite character was Obi Wan Kenobi. Like for, <laughs> to him, it was just the same guy, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You know, because I, I have to do a little, I have to do a little bit of heavy lifting in my head to okay, Ewan McGregor is you know. Um, James Arnold Taylor is Alec Guinness is they're all the same character, right? But for the for the kid, I mean, he just saw this this guy who talked like Obi Wan, kind of looked like an older Obi Wan, and he just got it. He's like, yeah, that's Obi Wan, and all that stuff that he'd been through. That's 
that's what Alec Guinness had gone through. And well, I do I have to really say, awesome. Alec Guinness really does a great job of evoking Ewan McGregor. Just phenomenal <laughs> job. <laughs> he is so and talented. He has. There are moments in this movie where, where Alec Guinness, I swear to God, is is like doing a line read of James Arnold Taylor. I mean, like he's just. <laughs> well, it's kind of like when when Chris Pine and Spock, you know, and, and stuff. it's like Alec Guinness was like, you know, here's the James Arnold Taylor moment, and here's the McGregor moment. Now that's good acting. There's and an, then, uh, there's an eight year old kid out there someday who's going to benefit from this. And, <laughs> and here we have uh, Vader completely dropping the ball. <laughs> like, yeah, he really does. He's distracted though because Obi Wan's on board, and it's well, messing that's with him. Saying he he sensed that and goes, "Well, I'm just going to go back to my room and yeah, think about that." As opposed to walking out of the <laughs> ship and being like, "Whoa, I know I felt that." You know? <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. You're right. But there's a you know a certain pecking order here in the Empire, and he can't be getting his hands dirty just too soon. He's got troopers to deal with things first. Well, it makes you wonder if he's if he trusts how how much he trusts his own feelings. Um, pretty conflicted guy in a lot of ways. Sure. And, you know, and the force isn't the people's ability to use the force isn't infallible. People make mistakes all the time. That's right. So. Yeah, yeah they're not. I, 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 oh, I love that little pat, that uh, little scratch that uh, Harrison Ford uh, Han gives Chewie there when they're coming out of the uh, the smuggling compartments. It's just, it's just a nice little bit of business. I just thought they were sitting yeah. on him. Be like, get off me, you guys! <laughs> but you know, the thing about Vader walking away, I hadn't really considered, and, and now I'm starting to think about it a lot. It's 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 bringing up all these old memories that he had buried away for decades now because the yeah. only way he could survive and move forward with with his life as Darth Vader was to completely forget and bury the life that was Anakin Skywalker and now here's something yeah. that's bringing it out of him totally involuntary he wants to step aside and consider the implications of these feelings or, that are rising or up within him. Or just run away. Or Literally just, yeah, run away. run away. Run away because the Sith, sometimes they do act like cowards. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's a lot of fear involved when it comes to the Sith. Um, I have to imagine the stormtroopers and the scanning crew were dumped into that little cargo space. Their bodies are just rotting away. You know, in Return of the Jedi, they open the cargo space like, oh, those bodies from the Death Star. Oh, God, I remember a camping trip in 1988 and during college years when I forgot about a package of hot dogs in my trunk. And two weeks it. later, I started smelling something rather foul. I thought I would find a dead squirrel up in my, uh, in like the axle of my car. And I opened up my trunk and found... You don't want to know what I found growing in that trunk. It wasn't oh, pretty, man. though. Yeah, I this think scene always exactly... makes me a little bit. Uh, always makes me a little bit sad because this is, this is the goodbye. This is when Obi Wan leaves Luke. And... Yeah, really. And his exposure to Luke on a one-on-one basis is so limited. In these, you know, you have six films that make up the Star Wars saga currently, along with the Clone Wars. And you always think of Obi-Wan as being that major mentor to Luke Skywalker, and they're really together just for a cup of coffee. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. And he knows. I, you know, that's another thing that I love about this performance is... Uh, Despite the fact that he signed up for the film, not knowing that his character was going to die off, uh, the way he plays this, he knows this is goodbye. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and they see that's another thing. Um, which I'll, I'll save this for when we actually see it, but there is a, there is another moment that indicates that Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, Alec Guinness, like understands the relationship between Luke and Vader. And I'll, I'll call out that moment a little bit later, but it's, you know, it's interesting to, to note that episode four is the, uh, this is the plan Yoda and Ben Kenobi and, well, and Bail Organa had a plan, right? That they said, listen, mm-hmm. we were screwed. The Jedi are dead. The universe has been taken over. We lost. Okay, but here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to hide these two kids away. And we can't train them the way that we've traditionally trained them because they'd be vulnerable, right? We'd take our time and we'd teach them the right way. But the Emperor would sense them, come and take them away from us or kill them or whatever. So what we have to do is wait till they're adults, you know, wait till they're young adults and then train them as fast as we possibly can. And then Leia, Luke, Obi-Wan, Yoda, and Bail Organa, we're all going to take on the Empire, take down Vader and defeat the Emperor. Right. That's the plan. But and think and how- the, the plan goes to hell. <laughs> you know, I love that. I love the fact that this plan does not does not work out the way that they that they originally envisioned. But how you know? manipulative of them is that i mean to, to not to not tell them that, i mean they're really kind you, of pawns you right you can't you know people say well why did ben lie to luke it's like well it's very clear because luke at this point in the story if he said no your dad's alive luke would go seek him out and then he would be sure. the emperor you know you'd be darth vader's new apprentice or he'd be the emperor's new apprentice and so he'd become part of that whole thing why didn't obi-wan kenobi take custody of luke as a as an infant and train him from the moment he was born and prepare himself for what his eventual destiny. If if you train, if you, if you train these kids, they're defenseless. Like you give them a little bit of the force, but they're just children anyway. Right. The emperor, they, it's, it's not a good situation. The emperor would sense that there was force use happening and, and that would be the end of it. That's why you have to wait till they're a little bit older and can defend themselves and then train them as, as fast as you can. Well, no. Jim, if you're if you're asking about why didn't he just become the surrogate father for for Luke like Bail Organa did, I think that you know he was really trying to just be as uh, discreet as possible in an yes. in an in an older man with a young boy like that. He would have really stuck out, I think, a lot more. Yeah, he wouldn't well, have been able know, to blend in as much. Yeah, he's he's watching over Luke from a close from you know from a, a distance, a close distance, relatively, but he's. He's, you know, he's waiting for the time to be right. He's waiting for his old friends to get a hold of him and say, now's the time. Now we're taking on the Empire. And uh, in the meantime, him and Yoda presumably are not really using the Force that much. You know, something that Lucas said when, when you know, during story meetings of the Force Unleashed, which I, I don't know that George ever remembers that he said these things, but there was a whole discussion about why doesn't General Coda sense that Starkiller is, you know, the guy who blinded him, right? There's this whole story. For, for those who don't know the story of Force Unleashed, there's a... Starkiller is a Sith apprentice. He goes to fight this Jedi. He's, he's meant to kill him and kind of fails at that, but he does, he does blind him in the fight. He blinds him with a lightsaber. And then later, he starts turning away from the dark side and he needs a new mentor, so he finds that blind Jedi. And that Jedi presumably does not understand that Starkiller is the guy who blinded him. So this, you know, and that was a big question. Why is that? And George said, well, that's because if you 
go away from the Force. If you stop using the Force, you start losing your connection with it. And that's what these mm. Jedi are. And, and he talked about the Jedi go off. Some of them, few of them became bounty hunters. A lot of them just just disappeared, you know, scattered to the four winds. And after a while, their their connection to the Force eroded, and they could not call upon it the way that they used to. And presumably, that's what's happened with Ben Kenobi is that he he stayed away from it so he wouldn't be detected. Almost uh-huh. like a, that's interesting, Sam. Almost like it's like a muscle that atrophies if you don't yes. use it. Yeah. But see, on the contrary, I believe that Obi Wan spent those twenty years in the desert, and Yoda spent that time on Dagobah, communing with Qui Gon Jinn and learning to use the Force on an entirely different level. But during that period of time, they had to be tapping into the Force just to communicate with Qui Gon. Um, presumably. That also happened, but I mean, I, I and I don't know the specifics. I'm not, you know, I'm not. I didn't invent this stuff, but but George did say that to keep a low profile, the Jedi um, stay away from it. Well, they, he would know, they, um, you know. So perhaps there's a different, you know, perhaps meditating and communing with spirits is not does not trip the alarms the same way that pulling well, out the lightsaber. Right, because maybe it's the does. spirits themselves making the connection, not the other it, way around. And, and I always thought too the re, the way that uh, Dagobah was able to shield Yoda was because the swamp planet was just so replete with life, yeah, just rich that, with life uh, energy. You're right, right? Like like rainforests and and well, and, and swamps uh, are just just full of so many different life forms. So well, there's something else that's going, what we had. Something else going on at Dagobah because there's some structure there, and we don't you know the cave of evil. And if you look, there's actually architecture, like some. Something carved into the rock. I don't, you know, if you watch The Empire Strikes Back, Luke walks in and he's walking into what looks like a, well, a corridor that looks sort of like this, this, this uh, prison corridor with these arches, this rock arch. And uh, who knows what the hell that is. And that's, you know, what's so much fun about these movies is that there's details in there that they don't fill in for you, that you don't know Yoda's background. You don't know what the deal with Dagobah is. You don't know all these things. Speaking of detail on the Blu-ray, I could really see the nice stucco walls they have here in this prison. So oh, totally. Was- right. Oh, I, I, I was just saying I could totally tell that she wasn't wearing a bra there. <laughs> there are no I, bras in just, space. Right. The, no underwear uh, in space. This this conversation makes it clear mm-hmm. that Tarkin is one of the few people who understand that Anakin Skywalker is Darth Vader. Mm. Um, this whole, you know, he, he is here. Obi-Wan Kenobi, what makes you think so? Uh, when I, the last time I felt it was the presence of my old master. If, if this was news to Tarkin, he would have been like, whoa, whoa, say what? Your old what now? <laughs> Obi Wan Kenobi is your what now? <laughs> like who are you? what? But he he takes it in stride, like he's heard it all before. He understands who Darth Vader is, and which I think makes Tarkin a more interesting character. That the Emperor and Vader have trusted him with this information. I mean, I don't know that it's a big secret. Could could you argue though, Sam? Could you argue that he might know that he is a fallen Jedi turned Sith, or that he specifically knows that it's he says. Like a he says the last time I felt it was in the presence of my old master. And if, and if you want more evidence than that, well, I got it from George and Dave. He knows. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well, but we, we know from the Clone Wars just how up close and personal, you know, Tarkin saw the relationship between Obi-Wan and Anakin. So, and, and there's only ever one apprentice and one master in terms of the the uh, the structure there. So yeah, I think I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. He knows. Well, you know, and the the other part of it is that like 
you have to remember that it's not like it's a huge secret. I mean, if the emperor had his way, he would have introduced this guy, this, you know, he would have used Anakin Skywalker's reputation to help cement the empire, you know, Mm -hmm. instead he had to invent a new identity. This Darth Vader guy is the actual hero of the empire who helped defeat the Jedi. But had he not been scarred, Darth Vader and Anakin Skywalker would have very publicly been the same guy. You know, I mean, it's not like point. Could, great you know, point. It, it, it begs the question of why do we assume that it's a big secret? Well, the, the reason we assume that is that the idea of the force itself has fallen away from public knowledge, that it is not encouraged for people to believe in something called the force. I mean, that's, you know, they're, they're suppressing that information in the empire. And, uh, and so to learn that Anik, you know, that, that Vader was like one of the most powerful Jedi is maybe not terribly useful to the empire at this point. So I think it's a, it's a matter of con- of convenience. I mean, Anakin probably would have become some sort of general or with a public face or something like that if he hadn't burned and scarred. But in the case of Darth Vader, he just becomes this mysterious enforcer mm. that people are not aware has anything, any connection with that imaginary thing called the force that sometimes people whisper about, you know? So I think it's, it's that it's, it's shrouding the idea of the force. The empire, the emperor does not want anyone believing in the force. And you see that with the Imperial military. They, they just don't get it. You know, this is classic. I mean, Oh yeah. This This, is one scene. It's dialogue. I love it. This is one scene, too, that was in every draft of Star Wars, going back to the outline. Lucas always had the heroes ending up in the trash compactor. In the trash. Yeah. <laughs> the heroes in the trash. It's interesting, though, this, this, um, this dialogue is all... It's something that when we were working on Force Unleashed that, that I, I had to discover if I was going to make the character feel like he belonged in these movies. And uh, it's that George Lucas always said, I mean, the, the joke that they had on the set was that he said only two things to the actors. He said faster and he said more intense. You know, whenever they do a take, how was that, George? Uh, do it again, faster, more intense. <laughs> and uh, but when you watch this movie, it's the direction is saving the entire movie because mm. all the dialogue, you know, can't get out that way. It looks like you've managed to cut up on your escape route. Maybe you want to get back in yourself. <laughs> you know, it's 1940s oh. pick of the dialogue. And you never get ahead of it, and it's, it's absolutely very excitingly delivered. It's Spencer, it's Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. I mean, it's, that's exactly it. Yeah. yeah. And even this scene, I mean, the dialogue is at a breakneck pace, which gives it a very old school <laughs> feel. And how does he disappear here when they're only knee deep? He gets pulled in. He gets pulled down. I know, but. Han really makes a very half-hearted attempt <laughs> to true. try to find the guy. Well, but you have to understand, at this point, Luke was competition for Leia. And Absolutely, Han, yeah. yes. And there also, you know, Han's probably thinking, that thing must have more tentacles. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll tell, you, sure. I'll tell you, Chewie really makes me laugh in this whole sequence with him pounding on the door and stuff. <laughs> you know, when I was younger, I thought it was, uh, you know, it was a moment of desperation, and, and it still might be. But as an adult... I find it to be very funny. And I know they added, well, they added more sound to it for the special edition, more sound of Chewie growling. More, you could hear him actually physically hitting the door, which is something that wasn't really clear, I think, in the yeah, earlier versions. Yeah, true. I didn't really understand as a kid what he was doing. But, I mean, really what they were trying to do is preserve the suit. They couldn't get Peter Mayhew with right. all that 
what is it, yak fur or whatever, they couldn't get it in <laughs> the garbage without wrecking the suit. So they had to keep him out of it. But that's one of the wonderful things about when you're doing something with a not um, with a not unlimited budget, basically, is that you have wow. to make these really smart compromises that sometimes create, in this case, a fun character moment for Chewbacca. You know, I mean, right? It's um, it's very cool. It's very, you know, it's the classic story um, from the '80s is someone was trying to make a uh, time travel movie and. They created this whole sequence at a nuclear reactor where these characters are going back in time, and they budgeted out the sequence to be like twenty million dollars for just that scene. And like, well, I guess we can't do that. I mean, it's a beautiful scene; we love it. We're in love with it. We wrote it; it's amazing. But yeah, there's no way we can do it. Um, what if we make the time machine a, a car, or you know, <laughs> like a DeLorean? Well, yeah, make it a DeLorean, and then suddenly you have the one point twenty one gigawatts. And you have. <laughs> You know, you're back to the future, and it's all because of the limitation, right? Or, 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 or think about Jaws and think about how yes. the limitation of not being able to have a see mechanical shark. shark that worked. So let's not see him. Exactly. So you know, it's. I mean, I'm working on a fairly modestly budgeted TV show, and and I sure like to complain about it, but but it, it you know, the budget, but but it makes us be more creative. Absolutely. I, th- I think X-Files was a great example of that, of really never seeing and rarely seeing the alien, rarely seeing the, the, the monster. Uh, it was all in your imagination. Yeah, definitely. And this seems, I mean, yeah, I, it just this movie looks so beautiful. I mean, especially with you know, the HD conversion. I mean, I love that they didn't scrub away the film grain and you can see all the weathering they did on just about everything. It's really, yeah. really oh, it's a it's a great transfer. Yeah, it really is. It's it's top notch. Some of the best Star Wars comedy come from these moments. We'll all be a lot thinner. Uh, maybe you <laughs> like it back in your cell. Uh, you know, oh, they're they're dying R two. They're dying R two. You know, th- these are laugh out loud moments, and they come in at a very tense time for our heroes. Oh yes. Uh, you know? yeah. Well, I think these are these are great examples of uh, the contribution to the screenplay that was made by Gloria and William Hayek, and uh, they were brought on board to, I think, provide the, the these right. kinds of yeah. moments. Punch it, up it the was, dialogue is what, primarily right. what they did. Right, exactly. And a lot of it was nice. the was the humor. Yeah, things then, like uh, walking carpet. I mean, yes, I mean something that George. I mean. For all of his great gifts and talents, I, I, I don't know that he's a, what you would call a real humorist. Um, well, you know, I, I so disagree so, with that. He, he, I, he's got a, a real keen sense of humor, but it's an old school sense of humor. I mean, you know, yeah. the, uh, you know, it's 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 littered throughout these these movies, or or you know, the Indiana Jones movies for that matter. I mean, like they are very funny movies. Um, I, I would say maybe the situations and the moments, but uh, the, the dialogue. I think you know clearly he's always. Oh yeah, that's not necessarily style. where the humor lies. But you know, with Indiana Jones, the fact that he gets in all these fights and the hat never falls off—that's hilarious, <laughs> right? You know, I mean, it's, it's that kind of humor. It's yes. you know, it's the humor that comes from the fact that he sat in Saturday morning serials and watched these bigger-than-life heroes have these ridiculously dangerous situations to deal with. For um, some reason, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off, Sam, but for some reason, this tractor beam sound effect had always been one of my favorites. 
and I've asked Matt Wood, I've asked Ben Burt where it's come from, and it's just some old stock piece of, it might even be a theremin tone slowed down or something. Mm. But the reason I always loved it so much is because it's one of the easiest to imitate. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I Maybe swear that's that was where it came in stereo from. when you did that, that, that <laughs> left speaker to the right. Um, there's a lot of yeah. Well, that, that was the thing, you know. They Ben Burt's whole idea about uh, an organic acoustic soundtrack, where all of these sound effects. It's, we're, we're derived from real world sound effects, thus giving this world, you know, grounding orally. Yeah. And I uh, it's brilliant. Yeah. Now, listen to these guys. These two stormtroopers sound like the same guy. You know, if they're, you know, a yeah. little short for a stormtrooper, and it's like, yeah, because they're clones. What are you, uh, a defective clone? What's the deal? Like, giving, giving, that's how you give a clone a hard time is by saying you're shorter than your. <laughs> your brothers <laughs> and uh, you know I was having a, a talk with Filoni recently about this and, and um, you know expressing to him that you know he's like yeah but what about some of the clones some of the stormtroopers are in fact shorter than others and I'm like yeah and you've done the same on your show you've had clone troopers who were shorter they were kids but I mean you know those are younger clones they're all the you know from the same template I don't know that they're Django fat at this point but you know, I, I really subscribe to the idea that these guys are clones. Listen to them. They sound like the, sound like the well, same. You can, imagine, you can imagine if, if, if they are clones that at this point they're spread so thin that they can't afford to uh, get rid of the bad batchers, as they call oh, them, the clone wars. They, they've got to use so everybody. Now, here's another addition that really works is that, that dead end in the hall. I never really understood what happened in the earlier version of the film. He runs to the dead end and then the stormtroopers decide, no, nah, we're gonna we're gonna fight this guy. And that's <laughs> kind of a you know, it's a cerebral idea. Whereas like the one that's in the film now is a visual idea. You know, that Han runs and then he runs into five hundred stormtroopers and now they're gonna chase him. And that's I think that really works very, very well. You know, it's interesting, too, that I, I actually think that Carrie Fisher looks a little older here than she does in Empire Strikes Back. Almost like they've kind of done the makeup up a little bit too much. Yeah. Uh, well, she was like, what, she was like 19? Or yeah, she's very young. Very young. Yeah, not even 20 years old when she did this. And uh, it's easy to sort of forget just how beautiful she was. Yeah. Just this is a I, this scene. It really is. It was one of my early favorites as a as a kid because it's the hero moment for Luke. This is, is when he is starting to behave heroically, and yeah. the music is telling us so. You know, you, you see echoes of uh, Errol Flynn's uh, Robin Hood here at this moment. I, I really believe. Yeah. You know, it's he's got the girl. He's faced uh, in this impossible situation. There's only one way out, and uh, he's gonna he's gonna swing across yeah. that chasm. Well, also, you know, everything is way more human scale in these films that, you know, Owen and Baru, when you see them in the prequels, they're bright eyed and hopefully looking off to the, to the sunset. And then you see them in this in this film and their life is worn on them and life is worn on the droids. And, and Han Solo is a reflection of, of the real world and how it makes you cynical and jaded. Um, but I love that in, in, in this the very realistic, you know, 
could possibly be done in real life type thing of, hey, I'm going to get this rope and we're going to swim across the chasm. And the big victory was throwing the grappling hook and having it land. And it wasn't about doing a giant leap and doing the thing of the, the heroes of old. Not yet, anyway. Not for Luke. For Luke, he's, he's wading into it very slowly. By the way, watch this lightsaber as it leaves frame. Uh, Darth Vader's lightsaber. Um, Obi-Wan lights his up, and then Vader, watch, you'll see this light at the bottom of the frame. Hmm. And that's... that's oh, yeah, there cool. you go. Yeah, I see it. And, uh, you know, it's because these things were actually throwing light all over the place. Uh-huh. And another thing that I liked that they did in this lightsaber fight, they never did ever again, were these little strobes. You know, like when the mm. lightsabers got too close to each other, there were big flashes as if they were, you know, like two Tesla coils, right? My and they God. never did that again. I just uh, saw something there I've never seen before, and it looked like a lot of re- reflective dust particles flying off of the sabers it must have been yes. the material from the those those reflective rods that they were using precisely yeah they had to off. one of the reasons that this fight went the way it did is they had to be very delicate with these things not hit them against each other very hard um which is why in the empire strikes back when they got rid of the reflective material they were just going for it you know but in this one they had to be very gin- almost gingerly and yet i gotta say these performances i mean alec guinness is pretty uh engaging here in this fight um I, I really love this fight it's you know it's the original and uh you know it's well and, and it, it it speaks a lot that vader is using both hands in this you, you notice later when he's facing off against luke he's one-handed through most of it just kind of playing sure. with luke but there's I no think that's a with, reflection he's not going to underestimate obi-wan it's a reflection of his arrogance exactly jason right. he's he's not going to underestimate obi-wan but with luke he's just a boy he's untrained he's he's green i can take him with one hand but it was specific direction from lucas to the actors to hold it with two hands like it's a broadsword from yeah, like uh, medieval were, times like a lot of energy and a lot of power to it that you had to control by the way these strobes um that i was talking about i uh, i brought this up to joel aaron when i saw the fight scene between um darth sidious and savage press and darth maul in the clone wars episode the lawless i said joel did you put those old school star wars strobes in and he's like yes i did he's like we do that now for the important lightsaber fights you know mm. put those strobes in you know, to make it Very sort of cool. subtly feel like that A New Hope fight scene. Um, you know, those flashes of light. Now, um, Sam, I think we already passed the moment where you were going to Oh, right. About. Of course. I, I'm sorry. Yes, because That's there's okay. a moment <laughs> yeah. where Obi-Wan Kenobi looks, you know, he looks at Luke and then he looks at Vader as if, you know, he says, as if he's saying to Vader, it's too late. I, I got to him first. And he's already on his <laughs> on his way to being a hero and not a villain, you know. Because if Vader had gotten his hands on Luke, you know, it's it would have gone very differently. Oh. Um, which is the story that we inte- endeavor to tell in the Force Unleashed. It's like that's what would have happened to Luke. Um, but um, I love know, that. that. I love that. I've never thought of it that way. We got him first. Yeah, we got him first. We he is now on the path to becoming a a, a Jedi Knight, not a not a Sith, and. Uh, you know, he looks at he looks at Luke, and then he looks at Vader, and he smiles at Vader. You know, and, 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 and not only, you know, that's, yeah, and I think he's saying he's saying his 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 job's done. Mm-hmm. That's it. I did it. I've I've passed on, I've I've passed on wisdom and inspired the next generation, and now it's too late. 
Well, I don't think I don't think he's saying his job's done because he does go on to become more powerful than you can possibly imagine, and that is no understatement. You know, the his ability earthly, to his to, earthly job is done, right? Yeah, exactly. I think I think you know symbolically his job is done. You know, because if if you look at Obi Wan's um, you know Obi Wan's uh, involvement later on, it really is sort of a, a ghostly reflection of the in- inspiration that he gave Luke in this film. Um, now here's now here's a sequence that that. I I love that he didn't monkey with at all. You know that it works just as well now as it did in 1977. This whole gun bay sequence. None of the effects were uh, redone. I... None, none. Right, guys, help me out with the uh, with where these these guns are. I'm aware that there's one on the top. So there's one on the top and one on the bottom. Right. Yep. So okay. So all right. And who's and 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 and. and I'm struggling a little bit with like the this, the spatial. I always have with. Well, you know, yeah. So there's a shaft, and, and it's like a yeah. So the, who's the on gravity, top? Who's on the bottom? That's right. And gravity flips when you get into these gun bays. Yeah. Um, right. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think, I think we saw. I can't remember who we saw climbing up and who we saw climbing down. But Han climbs up. Han climbs up. So Han's on top. <laughs> that's, 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 he's, that, he's just that kind of guy that's right <laughs> um, this is I mean this whole sequence is just it's craft man I mean look at look at how they were able to do this unbelievable I am watching exciting sequence and, and also John Williams is playing his heart out I mean what a mm. an exciting um, musical cue you know and it's interesting they in Return of the Jedi the uh, Jabba's barge fight where Luke reveals that he has a new lightsaber and he's a Jedi and he starts rescuing all of his friends, you know, over the Sarlacc pit. Um, There were two cues that Williams composed for that and recorded, and you can hear them in the soundtrack and you can, you can play the alternate cue along with the movie and, and see that it works very, very well. But they, they did a version where they said, you know, do the gun bay music from the original star Wars and, and, as I understand it, the reason that they went with that, that version of the music over the Sarlacc pit is they're like, you know, we've been very dark for a long time and the heroes have been getting their, their butts kicked. Let's harken back to when they were winning for a second, because this is when, you know, they're starting to put themselves back together and the old band is back together. They got Han back and Luke is now maybe not quite a Jedi Knight, but he's getting there and let's, let's encourage this, you know? And, uh, and that's why they use the, um, that rebel theme over the Sarlacc pit, you know, the reprisal of this, of this music. Wow. That's cool. Very cool. Yeah. Talk about, uh, Hepburn and Tracy here. I mean, this is definitely that kind of relationship. Yeah. No kidding. (laughs) And and when you were, when you were mentioning earlier, Sam, about how Ford was kind of thrown in there at, at the end for the, uh, the auditions, it almost feels like George was not just looking for three separate actors. He was looking for a trio. Yeah, he was. The chemistry mattered a lot to him. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it, I hate to, okay, after you say that, I hate to say this. And I'm going to say this with the preface of shooting on a low budget and shooting fast. Um, it's very difficult. And sometimes you only get you know, very few takes to get something right or to get something that could be used or something, sometimes something has to be used that maybe isn't your best performance, but it has to be used for a different reason. 
And Harrison Ford has moments in this in this movie. I, I don't want to call him stilted, but it's not it's not his his best work. You know what I mean? His it's mm. it's charismatic work, and and he's really fun to watch, and he's he's just kind of like this this firecracker on the screen, um, and has so much presence. But he's not Harrison Ford yet. And by the yeah. way, I, it, his, his performance is kind of unstudied and a little bit raw. And if you see, there's a movie he did after this called Hanover Street, mm-hmm. and you can and it's really educational for me because he's you know he's coming off of Star Wars, but he's not Harrison Ford yet. And in and in Hanover Street, unlike this film, I, my opinion is that what he's doing isn't quite working very well at times. Mm. And then you get to The Empire Strikes Back, and from then on, I I don't know that I've seen a false moment out of Harrison Ford. I mean, like he he arrives. You know, he's, I am Harrison right. Ford, and suddenly everything he does is really, really rare and interesting and, and uh, dynamic and awesome and hard to do. And now, uh, was, was Raiders shot after Empire? Uh, yes, it was. In fact, it was uh, Empire Strikes Back, then it was Raiders of the Lost Ark, then it was Blade Runner. And uh, I yeah. mean, think about those three performances. Think about the Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> <laughs> and then Raiders of the Lost Ark, and then Blade Runner. Wow. All three pretty, you know, performances with different challenges attached to them. And it's, I don't know, as an actor, it's tremendously inspiring for me to see this guy in his young days when he's not quite Harrison Ford yet. I mean, I, I you know, I, I don't look at it like, oh, yeah, see, that, that moment wasn't very good. I don't use that to boost myself up. I use that as, as like, my God, you know, he's, he's got all the potential, and he's just about to arrive. But he's not quite. He, he hasn't arrived yet. And he's already That's, thirty-five. <laughs> and he's thirty-five, and he hasn't arrived yet. But then, my God, from here on in, his his career was unstoppable, and due in no small part to his his talent and his charisma and his presence. I mean, it's you know. You By the way, we're seeing it. here uh, evidence of why it was only a floppy drive in the R two unit. <laughs> That's well, you know, what? <laughs> not to diminish, <laughs> not to diminish. Not to diminish this accomplishment, this is one of the very first examples of digital animation. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. It was created by a guy uh, at UIC here in Chicago. And beautiful work. It's really good. I love that Lucas kept it. Yeah. Yeah. I am too. And uh, Dodonna, you know, he carries on a tradition of these rebel leaders we never really learn much about. Dodonna leads to Riken, leads to Akbar and Mon Mothma. You, you never really get to know what makes these people tick. Never even got to know what happened to Dodonna after the victory. I, I think one of the, the things that always has stuck out was this. May the force be with you. And Sam, to your point about how... Uh, the force is is something that's unknown and has been abandoned, uh, particularly and snuffed out by the Empire. But yet here's this rebel leader that's talking about, may the force be with you. So two things jump out at me. One is the fact that the, the force has become kind of a rallying call for the rebellion. The second thing is this notion of the midichlorians and uh, kind of... It, you know the, the lucky sperm club that you are a a force <laughs> potential, and the fact that Dodonna is saying may the force be with us all leads me to believe that indeed perhaps they discover that the midichlorians aren't the end all be all of the force, and that well that wasn't 
I, I all don't know life. The were ever. It wasn't. They weren't the force. They were a, a method by which you could measure someone's ability to become a, a Jedi or, or utilize the force in a specific way. But if it's indeed an energy field created by all living things, then yeah, it's an, it's a it's an inspirational message that says that everyone has a potential. You know. Mm. Um, but it's you know it's it, it is really uh, it's it you know it's it's fun to to see that these. You know, these hippies got together in some weird Mayan ruin and uh, and, and adopted this old philosophy that, that yeah. is now long since dead, this magic that has left the world. And that's this film really feels like that, especially if you if you incorporate the Clone Wars and the prequels into your into your Star Wars world. These films feel like, oh, all the magic is gone. But now we're trying to recapture a piece of it and you know and then by the time that you get to return of the jedi luke is now doing the things that the jedi used to do deflecting blasters and doing flips and stuff and oh by the way while while we're here um carrie fisher is um she doesn't have that much to say in this film but boy she makes an impression i mean that that incredible voice and uh and her presence. I mean, it's, mm. it really, I mean, this is, this is where casting comes in, man. It's like, you got to get people who with a little bit of screen time can really make an impression. And, uh, you know, it's, it's something that I, that I've said to my actor and director buddies that the mark of an actor that has presence is that people can do an impression of them. <laughs> right. Even if it's a bad impression, right. You think, Hey, Christopher Walken, or Harrison Ford, or, you know, people, right. Humphrey, Humphrey Bogart, um, John <laughs> Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, you know, everyone can do a bad impression of these guys, right? Or something, they can right. lock into something. Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. But then when you, you know, and then there are a lot of actors, unfortunately, some of them are around today. I mean, I mean, look, they, everyone has their own abilities. I don't want to disparage, you know, anyone, but I, I don't know that there is such thing as like a tailored Lautner impression, you know, like like the guy may have some charisma and abilities, but like, it's, you know, it's, it's something that I struggle. It's a with. little, it's a little vanilla, isn't it? it? Well, I mean, it's, you know, and, and a lot of actors, by the way, are being encouraged to be that way because somehow along the line, we've all decided, you know, Hollywood decided that, you know, being real is, it's just kind of talking, just let the lines come out of your mouth and don't do anything with them. And it's like, well, that's actually no more real than someone being ridiculously over the top. People well, you sometimes know, get animated and they talk and they wave their hands around. And, you know, for me and in my career that there's, it's, it's always figuring out when are the times when I can be a little bit bigger than life because it's kind of actor I want to be. I don't want to just be some guy who mumbles his way through stuff and it's easy to do that. But like, I think you know, that I'm, there's a, there's a, there's an acting uh, style that where you want to cleanse yourself of all of your, imagine somebody telling Jimmy Stewart, you talk funny and you, you know, you want to cleanse yourself of that. Um, so I, 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 I totally agree. Mm-hmm. I think that um, well, there's kind of a lot of just sort of plain, quite frankly, boring kind of blank slates out there. Yeah. People who are pretty to look at, but are, do not do anything. You have, there's no effect that you're feeling when they're on the screen and, uh, you know, interchangeable, you might say too. interchangeable. Right. And, and people that have a tremendous vocal mechanism or, or an interesting way of speaking or, or, or emoting. I mean, I mean, a lot of these, look at these pilots, right? Mm -hmm. 
they found guys with like personalities. There's that guy, and then there's that guy, and then there's that guy, and you know, <laughs> yeah, right. you know, and, um, <laughs> definitely a tradition George has upheld all the way up through Red Tails. You see a lot of the Rogue Squadron type, you know, archetypes there. Oh yeah. boy, when those those wings split open, I, I remember 1977, young Jimmy Mack getting blown away out, uh, just out of the theater because I had no idea that the wings would do that i know what a great surprise and I by the way know. you know we're talking about special editions and this version of the film everything that they do here every enhancement is wow it's i love it i love yep. what they did with the scent battle i mean it's so tastefully done i mean this is like i said with with these when people monkey with things you get some good things and you get some bad things and now we are you know i think I don't think anyone would argue that these shots aren't entirely superior and really have a, a visual and emotional impact that the originals didn't have. And I, and I just recently watched the originals and boy, I, I love them. You know, I'm I, an H version of a new hope and it's beautiful to see the work that they did and, and no one had ever done it before. So it was prototype technology. But if you want this film to last throughout the ages, you know, I understand why he, he changed this, this end battle or at least some of these shots. I find the I, I was just gonna say I find the battle uh, much easier to follow. Yeah, the um, narrative is tightened yes. up a lot with the special edition changes. And I remember that being one of the first things I did in '97, coming home after watching the special edition. Oh, probably seen it a couple times at that point, and so I felt like I knew it well enough to go home and then watch the THX versions and compare. Yes. and I just it was apples to oranges to me. Yeah, I mean this is. You know, the fact that it's funny, you know, when I, when I would show people Star Wars for the first time and I was taking them through the movies, I would show them the original A New Hope and then I would show them the special editions of Empire and Jedi. Right. But with this edition, I mean, the fact that the Han and Greedo thing, that you can't really see what happened there, that it's like it, it got chaotic and there were, you know, there were two shots and you're not really sure who shot first or what happened. The fact that that is sort of a compromise that George has given and the fact that the space battle works so well, I actually choose these days to show people the Blu-ray. You know, it's, uh, mm. I feel like, like good to bad has now tipped. It's slightly more on the good side in terms of the changes, you know. Um, and it also depends on what you're watching for. If you're watching to, to get people hooked into the Star Wars thing, I think you need to go with this Blu-ray. If you're watching with people from a film historian standpoint, you've got to watch the original. And sometimes, you know, people want to do that. They want to come over and say, hey, let's watch. I haven't seen the original. It's like, yeah, let's, that's, that's an important thing to, to watch even today. Specifically, these dogfights make a lot more sense now with the special editions. Uh, just the way you can see Luke chasing down the one who's chasing down Biggs. And then there's yes. another scene where Wedge blasts through one of them and actually flies through the cloud of debris and the explosion. And that never made any sense in the original one. It just the effects yeah. just weren't there. You know what's funny is is Wedge flying through. That was what I saw in my head when I was a kid. Like like they took a few special effects shots and created the impression that he blasted the guy and flew through the explosion. Um, so it is nice to finally have that literally. You know, like yeah, you right, actually right. see yes. exactly what he did here this moment. Um, because, you know, they, they skillfully created the impression of that in 1977, but now they actually could show it. Yeah. They could actually do it. Here it comes. It's a right great here. shot. This is it right here. And if you notice in a couple of these shots, if you look at Mark Hamill's eye, his left eye, you'll see a broken blood vessel. 
And uh, it's not in all the shots, especially not in the real close-ups. But there are a few cockpit shots I noticed, especially as they were flying toward the Death Star, where you clearly see it. I'd heard the story, God, not even too long ago, about how that happened. But it was a case of overacting, I'm sure. <laughs> well, Star Wars, you know, Star Wars acting, take it from me, it's strenuous. <laughs> it's exhausting. Yes, leave nothing at home, leave nothing off the table. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's uh, these movies work better when the performances are big and fast, you know. Talk loud, talk fast. Bigger than life. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I which is why I, I really hope that JJ understands that. <laughs> you know, I, I, I suspect he will. And the dogfight itself is something that was a little lacking in the prequels. You yeah. saw a little bit of it here and there. Probably the best example of of, of a really good dogfight is what happened uh, with Django and Obi Wan. In that asteroid belt, and then of course you have the opening sequence to Revenge of the Sith, which is, which is really great. But you're really just along for the ride there. This yeah. this story, this is a story here. The, yes, the trench really battle. Is. It's it's not just a bunch of guys shooting lasers at each other. It, it really weaves a tale. And just recently. I don't know how recently it is, but Michael Arndt, who is writing Episode 7, has been doing lectures on screenwriting. And he broke down the end of A New Hope and explained how about eight different storylines all come together and get wrapped up in a very satisfactory way to where it's a prime example of great storytelling to be able to take this sequence and be able to wrap up so many different stories that have unfolded during the film and tie it all up real nice and neat by the end. Yeah, it's oh, and, and for it to, uh, to build such a fever pitch at the end. I mean, you know, it's it, that whole thing at the, I mean, we're not there yet, so maybe I shouldn't talk too much about it, but you know, the, the, the situation Luke finds himself in where he's the last one and he even loses R2. So he has no technical, no, no technological assistance. And all he has left is uh, metaphorically his belief in himself, you know, the force. And, uh, it's incredibly well done. You know I mean? It's, it's, this is easily my favorite. Absolutely. You know I mean? I feel like empire is pretty flawlessly executed and really deepens the stories and enhances all the movies around them. But God, this movie, I don't even know how you begin with nothing and end up with this film. I don't understand (laughs) how you invent these things. I mean, look, you know, take one idea, take like the lightsaber. There have been movies, indeed franchises that, that have one really cool element and they build a franchise around that. Star Wars has like 15 of those things, you know, (laughs) it's got laser swords. It's got space, Wizards, it's got Darth Vader and it's got C-3PO and it's got X-wing fighters and it's got, the Force, and it's got Jedi Knights, and they're all in the same <laughs> universe. They're all the same franchise. I mean, it's just endless, the amount of uh, stories you can, you can tell. Um, I mean, the, 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 amount of, the amount of iconography is Yeah, is exactly. I mean, incredible. it's unbelievable um, how many cool things. Any movie would be lucky to have one of those things. Right. Star Wars has just a, an embarrassment of riches when it comes to really awesome elements. And I think it's because it, it didn't try to do it. You know, I've often 
you know, mentioned that, you know, you take something like Avatar where Cameron's really trying to create a universe, trying to make a Star Wars like uh, project. And it just it, it, it feels forced. Yeah, no Lucas kind of created all these elements and then just kind of let them be there. I mean, it's one of the yeah. more fascinating things about I talked earlier about how he uses um, elements from earlier scripts or earlier ideas and doesn't throw them away. There, some of those elements are felt on the screen, even though they were lifted from the script or cut from the movie. You know, you still feel um, certain backstories. You know, you can tell that Luke has a backstory. Well, they shot it, but they cut it from the film. You, know, you can tell um, that there's a long history with Darth Vader, and and there's a relationship there between him and Tarkin. And you know, these things were very, very well developed. And you, you know, you develop it, and then you forget about it, right? You you create it, and then leave it alone and somehow it will still kind of show up on the screen and uh, Lucas does that very very well I mean I, th- that guy you can only imagine the pressure you know this guy's you know if, if he blows this he's probably never going to direct a film again no one's going to let him <laughs> and uh, he's trying all this prototype stuff that has never been done and he has to create a company like ILM to even accommodate the stuff that he's thinking in his head and i mean somehow this this stuff all worked out i mean no wonder he ended up in the hospital dude i mean this guy (laughs) this is a this is a folk legend here this is a folk hero for being able to have created this and then to go on from there and take control of it and uh i mean you know it's a lesson that hollywood you know, learned that they would never ever grant anyone sequel rights to, to a movie they were making ever again. Right. <laughs> or merchandising rights. I mean, you know, right. like Lucas grabbed all the, the slush rights, the things that no one wanted. He grabbed, I want the soundtrack rights. I want the merchandising rights. I want sequel rights. And 20th Century Fox is like, fine, you're crazy. You want all those things in favor in, instead of a directing fee. Fine. Take them. And then the movie is a wild success and, and Lucas is able to create his independent film company. And then the rest of the star Wars movies are independent films, which they never really get credit for that, but they are, they're indies. And, and that, uh, kind of, that, that kind of innovative business sense that he had, that goes back to, to American graffiti when he famously got the publishing rights to uh, all of that music uh, from the sixties uh, for just pennies. Such a smart guy. And, you know, it'll never happen again because Hollywood will never allow it to happen no, again. But not, he's the guy that invented it. Definitely you know, in the right place at the right time. Well, and also just the right intelligence, the yeah. right wisdom, mm-hmm. the right the right instincts. And, uh, you know, it's why we're all, um, you know, it, we're all a little bit shaken by the fact that Lucasfilm is no longer an independent film company because that was like, it's a legend, you know? Skywalker Ranch and all that stuff, you know, this guy went off and created his own film company. And, you know, it's, it's very much like Luke in the X-Wing right now. This is, we're watching George Lucas beating the odds with the help of his friends and, and, uh, rising above this and, and, um, creating a place for himself, you know, becoming a man his way, you know? And he created more than just a company and a great film, but he created a culture and an environment and an attitude that yeah. made this sort of innovation possible. Yes, and and he uh, and with it, he created a he passed along certain morality to to kids everywhere, and so you know we all have that kind of baked in us. 
you know, having grown up with these films. You know, we hear earlier where uh, they're a, when they first see the Death Star, they observe, or Obi-Wan makes the observation that a fighter that small couldn't have got that deep into space. And yet, there goes Vader. Uh, just curious, how deep into space are well, they? Well, keep in mind well, that his I, X-Wing... Did, it does have hyperspace capabilities, yeah, which his, is his something. Tie, those, oh, that's true. Yeah. You're right. Those, You're right. Yeah, those regular ties don't have. Stock Tie Fighter. You know, that's not. <laughs> no. No. One of my no. all-time favorite Star Wars ships is Vader's Tie Fighter. Yeah. Well, it's. I do love how the uh, the Empire is all mass-produced, and the Rebels have older but better ships, and less of them. You know. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um. And the Empire just can just fill the sky full of TIE fighters if they want. I mean, cheaply made, mass-produced. Even the, even the troops are mass-produced. You know? and right. they, it's, it's, the, it's a commentary on a machine that turns people into machines. That, that you know, like a, sort of a big corporate uh, mentality that, that makes people into just cogs in a wheel and robs them of their humanity. And Star Wars is the ultimate uh, message against that thinking. And having a, a pioneering um, and determined um, need to go out there and uh, improve your humanity, improve your worth as a human being. That's um, certainly what I've taken away from it. I mean, I, it's, you know, and then this, this last sequence is really kind of, you know, the validation and the payoff that, that you know, you can fight against incredible odds and win some world victories here and there. And Han, Han proves you can wear a collared shirt with no buttons on it, <laughs> which has really <laughs> never been done before. Really quick, you can tell who Leia's going to end up with. She looks at Luke. Luke smiles at her. She smiles right back to Luke. Then she looks at Han. Han smiles at her. She doesn't smile at Han. Uh, that means they're going to be banging. And he's winking at her. <laughs> yeah, he's winking. <laughs> he's winking way, at her. I was too. always disappointed that uh, Luke didn't get to wear that outfit uh, more. I always love that uh, the ceremonial Luke jacket in the the black shirt, which is reminiscent of the you know the shirt that he'll later wear in, in Jedi. But I always thought that was a cool a cool look. And it was interesting too that the Marvel's comics that continued the story beyond the Battle of Yavin, uh, they put Luke right back in his farm boy outfit yeah, for a right. majority of the run. More, he doesn't wear adult clothes. He doesn't get back into this outfit until like the last four or five ep- uh, issues prior to Empire. But they do feature him in it after a while. They're like, yeah. let's get him out of those dusty old clothes. Totally. And Chewbacca, his last line is, "I got screwed." You know? <laughs> Where's right. my medal? Yeah, there's still, you know, it is fun. Also, the 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 uh, undertones of racism within the Empire. That that's another Nazi Germany thing. Mm-hmm. That uh, yeah, that they are they're minimizing certain peoples and and the America. colors. Keep in mind the colors of the empire. The 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 black for Vader, the white for the stormtroopers, and the red for Vader's saber are all three colors of the swastika. Yes, exactly. Black, white, and red. Yeah. So exactly. that's that's really scary when you think about it that way. You know, some of the groundwork that I I really loved the Clone Wars was. Uh, and they just kind of scratched the surface, but was this concept of slave trading and the reemergence of slavery uh, throughout the Clone Wars and how uh, Palpatine was actually using that to his advantage. And we can sort of assume that a good portion of the labor that would build and create the Death Star was potentially slave labor. Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, it, 
the empire is um, all of the worst things of, uh, of that human civilization can dream up of in terms of organizing people in a civilization. And, uh, you know, it is, it's the stand in for all of those things, you know, the, the worst parts of the Roman empire and the, the Nazi German regime and Imperial Japan, there's a little bit of influence in there. And, you know, mm. it's, there's, you know, it, it's, and, and, and also I hate to say it, but like also, uh, some of the things that are happening in this country, um, I mean, you watch the prequels and you watch some of the stuff in this movie and, and absolutely we're commenting on, on what is happening to us and what will continue to happen if we're not vigilant and we don't speak out against it. So, you know, I mean, I'm not just pointing the finger at other cultures. I think our own nation is, uh, you know, in certain amounts of trouble. Sure. So what you're saying is it's not just Star Trek that has a good social commentary element. Star Wars does as well. Yeah, it just presents it more right. uh, visually. Star Trek is a little bit more. Well, I love you know I love Star Trek. I just but the but the Trekkies uh, that 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 hate on the Star Wars always like to think, well, you know, we're much more intellectual, we're much more complex and layered, <laughs> and uh, I think those layers are there in Star Wars. You just have to dig a little bit deeper. No, they're they're absolutely there. It's it's there are things I love about both of them. I'm not necessarily a very competitive guy, so I, I actually like both of those uh, worlds. You know, they're a lot of fun to be had with both of them. But, um, and, the, yeah, you know, I mean, and it's funny because the more you try to compare them, the more it just falls apart. They're so different. Yeah, yeah. And so, but, but anyway, back, back to this as we're watching the credits roll, I'm, I'm realizing that, you know, this is my favorite Star Wars film. And I, I dare say the Blu-ray, um, I think, is is the strongest version of that film. Um, and I'm just going to go on record and say that I, uh, I will always have a special place in my heart for the original historical document. And I will continue to put out there that I think that they need to release that, that we deserve that as fans. I mean, you know, you can't take that away from the culture who supported Lucasfilm and supported these movies being made. Um, but having said that, I, I think objectively, um, there's more good than there is bad in this, in this version of the film. I agree. I agree. I'm looking forward to going back and seeing it again. I think this was uh, Jim and I were talking earlier about this maybe my second pass all the way through the Blu-ray, um, to tell you the truth. I haven't lived with it like I have the other versions. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. We, just, we just need it all, you know? Give us the theatrical cuts and we'll be happy. And uh, that's right. Lucas can keep monkeying around and, you know... <laughs> We'll be we'll be happy to see him do that. By the way, Jim, have you ever called that number that one eight hundred phone THX? I'm going to call it right now. <laughs> My presentation was was very poor. But the, you had these two guys talking. Say, I had these two guys talking in my ear the whole time. Yeah, I couldn't understand a damn thing. I don't know. Gosh, I think well, we guys. Uh, thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun. Oh, it was a blast, Sam. Thanks so much for hanging with us. Uh, boy, you know, hey, today is. Um, is uh five one thirteen, so it's uh five oh first. It's a big day for Star Wars fans. And of course we're releasing this to honor uh May the fourth. So may the fourth be with you, Sam, and you Jason. And Thank you. Uh, it was a great, you know, just I can't think of a better way than to uh watch uh my favorite film, which I've seen uh five hundred and one times now. So uh you guys are, are really great and uh I, I again 
you see the film so many times, and yet here I am sitting here with you guys tonight, seeing things I've never seen before. <laughs> I mean, every time I watch this film, I have some sort of revelation or another. And uh, I had a couple of them tonight. So, boy, oh boy, yeah. the the legend lives on. And uh, as a, we, it's a pretty rich film. Yeah, That's and. Sure. And I love touching base back with what made Star Wars happen in the first place as, as we start gearing up here toward sequel films and standalone films and a new film coming out every year. It's really nice to touch base with where it all started and uh, get back to the roots. And uh, I, I agree with you, Sam. I, I find the, the Blu-ray to be an extreme pleasure to, to watch. And uh, I never, ever in my life thought I'd be seeing the the original Star Wars film with with such clarity as if you're looking through a window watching it. And uh, it just really uh, makes me excited to see where film technology is going to be heading as I'm sure we're going to see new innovations as Star Wars continues to grow starting in 2015. Right on. Right on. So, hey, man. Thanks a lot for your time. Let's get together and do this again sometimes. Maybe start picking apart some of those Darth Maul episodes from the Clone Wars once they're all released on Blu-ray. Or go back and take a look at the Mortis trilogy, which is a, a favorite of ours. Because I'll tell you right now, as we're looking ahead to the future of Star Wars, we also will make sure that the Clone Wars will live forever here on Rebel Force Radio. Hey, you know, all you, you got to do is ask me. I'll be there. I'd love to comment on those. Awesome, Sam. Well, thanks so much. Have a great night. You too. See you guys later. All right, we'll talk to you later. Take care. All right, dude. Good times. Yes. Great times. That'll do it for us here on uh, Celebrity <laughs> Commentaries, our first one ever here with uh, RoboForce Radio, uh, A New Hope, the uh, proper way to kick off this uh, new miniseries, sub-series, I should say. And, um, you know, uh, curious to see who's going to be joining us for Empire and Jedi. Any requests? Hmm. I don't know. Uh, Mark Hamill? Okay, I'll send him an email right now. <laughs> Dear Mark, you know, it would be a lot of like, well, we called that guy Broccoli Face. What do you call him now? <laughs> we chased him around with butter and soy sauce. Uh, that's right. Well, no, it would be uh, actually this was this was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, it's not the first commentary we've ever done, but uh, certainly the first we've ever done with Sam Whitworth. Yes, yes. We've always gotten a lot of feedback from our loyal listeners, and they they let us know that Sam is a guy they love to hear talk about Star Wars. So we figured, what better way than to show him the original film and get his immediate thoughts on it? And Sam definitely did not disappoint. So we'll have him back. Uh, as we continue the series. And then next week on Rebel Force Radio, we'll be back with our regular show, and we're going to have a full report from the 30th anniversary Return of the Jedi VIP screening that's going to be happening at the Egyptian Theater this weekend, May the 4th, in Hollywood, California. I will be there, so be sure to watch uh, our official Facebook page and Twitter pages, and I'll be uh, floating out reports from the screening, from the event itself, and then... uh, be back with full report next week on Rebel Force Radio. I can't wait. All right. 
Well, there you have it, the first in a new series of commentaries in the can. We hope you enjoyed it. So glad that you've been with us. For Sam Whitwer and Rebel Force Radio, I'm Jason. And I'm Jimmy Mack. And remember, the Force will be with you always. <laughs>